The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Sorry about the delay there. It was just getting all set up. But now we are all set up, and we're here, and we're going to have a great conversation. It is going to be awesome. As always, a lot on my mind. We're getting ready for our four-day national retreat in Kansas. A lot of people are coming. A lot of exciting stuff happening, but a lot of news to update everybody on. Center for Political Innovation marching ahead. Jimmy Dore considering a presidential run. Amazing stuff happening. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, it's just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything we are racist, everything we put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people not the profits of a wealthy future. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you all here with us. Um, We're going to have a great stream tonight. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Always a pleasure when you do those things. It makes my life easier. A lot of things to talk about tonight. Um, uh, A lot of things to comment on. Now, the way we do this, for those who may not be familiar with our normal setup, um, you know, capital. Right. The way this works, as you've just seen, the way this works uh, is that I write down the super chats as they come in. Now, you know, we just had a super chat from Chaya about uh, just got back from Chicago on it as capital of Socialist USA. Um, You know, and as the super chats come in, Hamilton and Lincoln killed by Britain theory. Hamilton. Getting killed by Britain theory. Um, and now, as the super chats come in, I write them down. Now, I give my opening remarks. That's the first thing I do is I give my opening remarks. My opening remarks are then followed by uh, by a roll call where I call you all out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations. Um, that's the roll call where we find out who it is on the other side of the camera. Uh, And then, when that is all done, uh, then I answer Super Chat questions for the rest of the night. So if you want the second half of the show to be really badass and awesome, just keep the Super Chats rolling in. Is the relationship of modern USA Democrats to Republicans similar to the relationship of European sock dams to fascists in the 20s and 30s? Fair question. Is Republicans... Similar to the relationship between soft and fascists in Europe 
during the 1930s. All right. Very, very good. So, um, yeah, folks, a lot is going on in the world, uh, as I'm sure you are aware. Uh, one of the news items that gives me a huge amount of optimism and hope is that Jimmy Dore is preparing the possibility, not said he's going to do it, but there was a press release from the People's Party today that Jimmy Dore is considering a presidential run. And I am delighted to hear such a thing. It makes me very, very, very happy to hear that Jimmy Dore is considering a presidential run. Now, the Center for Political Innovation is an educational think tank that does not endorse any candidates. However, when I heard the news that Jimmy Dore is thinking of running for, can uh, for president, he's not yet a candidate, that makes me so, so happy because Jimmy Dore is an anti-imperialist, an anti-imperialist, right? Jimmy Dore is an anti-imperialist. Uh, Jimmy Dore is a critic of the emerging low-wage police state. When I was on his show, I called out the low-wage police state, and he said, wow, I like that, low-wage police state. You hit it on the head, the low-wage police state. He loves everything that we're about. I mean, he, he highlighted uh, one of our books, Bread Tube Serves Imperialism, on his stream. Uh, this is a really, really great development. and. Um, I personally hope that Jimmy Dore does run for president. That would be awesome. Now, you know, Jimmy Dore is considering the possibility, but he's facing the risks. I mean, Jimmy Dore has already been smeared and canceled and all. You can more viciously than they already have. You can be sure. They will viciously go after him uh, if he is an actual candidate on the ballot. Um, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't do it um, because uh, we need voice for the rising anti-war, pro-working class, pro-healthcare for all, Medicare for all, populist sentiments. We need that. Uh, we need a rising anti-war, working class, proletarian movement in the United States. We desperately, desperately need that. Uh, so if Jimmy Dore were to run for president, that would be amazing. I would be, I am for it. Jimmy Dore, if you're watching, if you decide not to run, I will forgive you because I love your contribution anyway. Um, but if you were to run for president, that would be a great thing for the United States of America. It would be a great thing for political discourse in this country to have you as a national candidate. You've got a million subscribers on YouTube. Uh, it would be awesome. It would be awesome if you ran for president, Jimmy Dore. Uh, so I'm telling you, uh, if you want my opinion, my humble opinion as a guy on YouTube, who's also the director of the Center for Political Innovation, who's a journalist and political analyst, the idea of you running for president, thumbs up. I'm for it. I am for it. I am for it, Jimmy. I think you ought to run. I think you ought to do it. I think having you become a political figure would be good for the country. I think it'd be good. You have the message that's needed. You're not part of the synthetic left and you're not part of the, the right wing. You are a working class, anti-war, pro-Medicare for all, pro-labor union candidate. And 
having you on there to oppose the lockdowns, how they've devastated working families, to oppose the surveillance state, uh, to call out the lying war makers and the fraud squad and the synthetic left and the right wingers and authoritarians and militarists. Having you on there would be awesome. I, I think having Jimmy Dore run for president would be tremendous, absolutely tremendous. And so I thought for my opening remarks tonight, I would go over the way Marxists relate to elections, because this is a complicated question. I don't know if before I've ever talked to you all, I think I have talked to you all about kindergarten communism. I like to talk about kindergarten communism, right? That Marxism, socialism, the science of moving from capitalism to a more egalitarian and democratic and working class led society where the means of production are operated to serve the people, moving toward a society without the irrational rule of greed, um, that, that it's a very complex history. And there have been many socialist movements in the past and many revolutionary organizations. And that how do you relate to the issue of elections is a big question. And there's what I like to call kindergarten communism, which is this very simple we need a revolution, not elections. Well, yes, obviously we do need a revolution. We do need to completely transform the political system. Uh, we do need, you know, a new government and a new state, um, you know, a new military, a new policing agencies. The transition from socialism is a transition to a new type of state that would serve the people. Um, and that would require, you know, it's not simply, simply something that could, you know, that could come from elections. Will elections lead to socialism? That's a question I've often been asked. And the answer, of course, is no, right? Socialism is the transformation of all of society. It is the, the transformation, the passing of the means of production and the centers of economic power from the hands of one group of people, the private capitalist owners, to the hands of the broad masses of people. And the idea that some big, dramatic transformation in which all of society is moved from being centered around making profits for a small group of private owners, only, you know, you know, and then from there transferred into being organized for the good of the people. The idea that such a big dramatic change could happen simply with a, a vote, of course, that's not scientific, right? It would take far more than an election. It would take a broad awakening of the masses of people. It would take labor unions on the job organizing, strikes, protests, community organizations and people's assemblies being formed. It would take all kinds of things. The Russian Revolution was not everyone went out to vote. And the, you know, the Chinese Revolution wasn't everyone went out to vote. And in the Bolivarian Revolutions, Venezuela and, and you know, Nicaragua, there wasn't just everyone went out to vote. Price controls. Um, the idea is that, you know, that, that this is be a big change. The idea that it would simply be people going to the ballot box and checking one candidate and then the whole system changes. That's just not how history works. And we'd be completely naive to think that elections, that just voting for one candidate or the other is going to lead to a socialist society. That would be completely naive. And so anyone who would 
would reduce it to that and say that it's just simply a matter of having a socialist get on the ballot, get elected, and then we have socialism. That's completely naive, and that's not what we're saying. However, the idea that we should ignore elections, we should pretend the elections don't exist, we should simply scream communism in everyone's face all day long, that's not very realistic either. Right? And that if you read left-wing communism and infantile disorder by Vladimir Lenin, he makes clear that it's important for communists to participate in elections. Why? Because elections are important. Elections are a measurement of the political participation, the political awareness, and the consciousness of the people. And if communists don't participate in the elections, then they are cutting themselves off from the millions and millions of people that do. Generally, our leaders don't want us to think about politics. They lock us out of the political process. They prefer that we're thinking about, you know, American Idol and celebrities and, you know, celebrity gossip. And, you know, they want us dazzled looking at our phone. They don't want us to be political. But elections are the one time in which society gives permission to the broad masses of people to be political when they go to vote to pick a candidate. And millions of people who don't generally think about politics suddenly are forced with the question of who are they going to vote for? And that is a moment in which political conversation takes place. And if communists just say, no, we need a revolution, not elections, we lock ourselves out of that conversation. We, we don't participate in elections. We, we then have no way of influencing that conversation. And it's a huge mistake. It's like someone hands us a, you know, a $50 bill and we say, no, no, we don't want that. We want a million dollars. We want a million dollars. Well, you know, take the $50 bill if someone's giving it to you, right? Elections are one place that communists can have a little bit of influence. And if we completely blow it off, we completely blow it off, uh, we're isolating ourselves. And there are a number of different ways that communists participate in elections. The primary way that communists participate in elections is as a recruiting drive. Now, that's the main way that communists have run in elections. They know they're not going to be allowed to win. The mainstream media will make sure they don't win. Uh, you know, the ruling class would pull off a military coup and prevent them from winning. Um, Jack Shulman and Smedley Butler. Shulman. I have. All right. And so communists run in elections in order to make a political statement, in order to convince people that socialism is the answer, in order to win people to socialism, get people to join socialist and revolutionary organizations. That's the main way they participate in elections. Eugene Debs was the most famous socialist candidate in American history. Eugene Debs was the leader of a railroad workers' strike in the 1800s. He went to prison, and in prison he studied Marxism and socialism. He came out of prison as a revolutionary socialist, um, and as a result of that, um, in California, if the mass exodus continues. I think what happened to California mass exodus continues. And He went around the country 
promoting socialism from town to town, from city to city, giving speeches, promoting socialism. He rode a red, a bright red train car promoting socialism. Uh, he ran in the 1912 election, almost got a million votes uh, in the 1912 election, which was pretty significant because I think the winner of that election only got like six million votes. So, you know, that was pretty significant. Uh, and uh, Eugene Debs, you know, gave his life ultimately. I mean, he refused to support World War One in Canton, Ohio. Uh, he gave an anti-war speech and was arrested for giving it and sent to federal prison. Uh, and he spent years in prison for opposing World War One and trying to build a working class movement against World War One. He was a socialist candidate for office and he knew he wasn't going to win, but he was running to spread the revolutionary message. He was running to build a mass movement. He was running to recruit people to join a socialist movement. It was a form of socialist education through elections. And William Z. Foster did that. In 1932, William Z. Foster ran a presidential campaign traveling from one end of the country to another. He wrote a book called Toward Soviet America, all about what the United States of America, the USSA, the United Socialist States of America would look like. Uh, and that's, that's one way that communists can participate in elections is with, you know, by doing it, using it as a recruiting drive. Uh, that's one way, one way of doing it. Shout out to Nick, Nick Brana of the People's Party. Shout out to you, Nick. We appreciate having you on here. Um, that's one way is as a recruiting drive. But in addition to that, there's another way that communists participate in elections. And that's when a candidate comes along who is not a communist, but they represent the mass resistance of the people. And that, that's a different kind of situation. But every so often you have a situation where a candidate comes along and they're not going to win necessarily. Uh, they, you know, unless the situation really changes, the chances of them winning are slim, but they represent the people's opposition, the people's resistance to the ruling class. And one of the greatest examples of that is in 1948, Henry Wallace, Henry Wallace, the vice president under Franklin Roosevelt, former head of the Department of Agriculture. He was vice president for most of World War II. He ran in 1948 against Harry Truman. And the 1948 elections, uh, Henry Wallace was against the Cold War. He wanted peace with the Soviet Union. He supported labor unions. He was against the Taft-Hartley anti-labor law. He was supporting civil rights for African Americans. And he wasn't a communist. And he was a Democrat, but he was representing resistance. He was opposed to McCarthyism. He was opposed to racism. He was supporting labor unions. He was opposing the Cold War. He wanted an alliance uh, with the Soviet Union. So he ran for president in 1948 on a platform of continuing what Roosevelt had started. Roosevelt had made friends with the Soviet Union during World War II. Roosevelt had, you know, had supported labor unions. And as the McCarthyists were purging the Roosevelt wing of the Democratic Party, Henry Wallace ran on a platform of supporting the Roosevelt wing of the Democratic Party. And uh, he got well over a million votes in the election. And he wasn't a communist, but that campaign, the Henry Wallace campaign of 1948, um, the Progressive Party, that campaign was the center of resistance to the Cold War. And the Communist Party endorsed it, and that was the right thing to do. Uh, and Sam Marcy of the Workers' World Party, which hadn't been formed yet, he was like a faction in the Socialist Workers' Party, they supported it. Um, and a lot of African Americans supported it. And it's a wild story because it can show you how a third party campaign that has no chance of winning 
can really change American history. So Henry Wallace ran for president in 1948, and he was a Democrat, but he was against McCarthyism, and he was for continuing the Roosevelt policies. He ran in 1948, and he made a big show of being against racism and calling out the Dixiecrats, right? The Democrats had that solid South, the Jim Crow supporters in the South that voted for voted for the Democrats. And Henry Wallace was a big supporter of the Black Freedom Movement. And a lot of urban centers like Chicago, like New York City, like Pittsburgh, like Cleveland, uh, you know, the Democratic Party depended on the support of black people. Black people could vote in urban centers in the North. They couldn't vote in the South. Uh, that's why indie podcasters should support Jeff Young. Okay, there you go. And at that point, 1948, the Democrats knew if they were going to defeat the Republicans, they needed to get the black people in the urban centers to vote for them. But Henry Wallace, who was aligned with the Communist Party, who was for equal rights and an end to segregation, Henry Wallace started getting the support of a lot of black ministers and a lot of black preachers, because unlike Truman, he was making noise about civil rights. So Harry Truman, in order to try and make sure black people voted for Harry Truman and not for Henry Wallace, Harry Truman integrated the U.S. military. And that was huge. That was a big deal. You think that's not a big deal? In response to try and take votes away from the Progressive Party to make sure that black people in urban centers in the North voted for him, Harry Truman integrated the U.S. military. It's a big deal. The U.S. military was integrated because of third-party presidential campaign. But on top of that, it gets better because after Harry Truman integrated the U.S. military and after it became clear that people like the Kennedy family and some others were starting to question Jim Crow segregation, then Strom Thurmond, who was also a Democrat, Strom Thurmond, uh, conservative, you know, Dixiecrat. He was a Democrat, but he was a, a, a racist, Jim Crow, white supremacist. Strom Thurmond announced that he was going to run against Harry Truman also. And so Strom Thurmond, the Dixiecrat, formed the National States Rights Party. And the National States Rights Party ran against Harry Truman on a platform of white supremacy and segregation and racial segregation. So there's a very famous photo. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a very, very famous photo. I think I'm going to pull it up for you because it you've probably seen it. But you need to see this photo because if you haven't seen it, it's like an iconic photo from American history. It's a very, very famous photograph. If you haven't seen it, you should because it's, it's one of the, the very famous photos in American history, right? Pull it up here. We're going to pull it up. Very, very famous, iconic American photo. Okay. Going to pull it up. You ever seen that? You ever see that? Dewey defeats Truman. Now, what's going on in this photo? What What's happening here? Why? You know, Harry Truman won the 1948 election. 
However, he's holding the newspaper that got it wrong. Right? 1948, election night. Everybody thought, everybody thought that the Republican was going to win. Why? Because the Democratic Party was split three ways. The socialists and progressives and Roosevelt Democrats were going to vote for Henry Wallace. In addition to that, the racist white supremacist Democrats were going to vote for Strom Thurmond. So, by every measure, by every measure, Harry Truman should have lost that election. And that's why, that's why that famous photo says Dewey defeats Truman. The, the, the Chicago Tribune, the main newspaper, they predicted that the Republicans would win. The polls showed the Republicans were going to win, but they didn't. They didn't. Because there was probably massive voter fraud. We don't know for a fact, but back in these days, this was 1948, in Chicago and in Boston and in Philadelphia and in a lot of parts of the United States, the urban political machines that were the base of the Democratic Party were crooked as a $3 bill. And somehow, despite the fact that a lot of black people wanted to vote for Henry Wallace and did, despite the fact that a lot of trade union members voted for Henry Wallace, despite the fact that the whole, you know a lot of Southern racists wanted to vote for Strom Thurmond, somehow the Democrats managed to pull it off. There had to have been voter fraud in that election. It didn't make any sense that with the Democratic vote split three ways. That's how much of an impact a third-party campaign supported by communists had. And throughout the campaign, they called Henry Wallace every dirty, you know, they called him a dirty, rotten red and a commie and a traitor and all these nasty things. How dare you, you dirty, rotten commie, you this, that, and the other. But he still managed to almost, I think he got a million votes. It was a big deal. The Communist Party was being prosecuted. Their leaders were thrown in prison. But amid their prosecution, amid all of this drama, uh, the communists campaigned for Henry Wallace, and it was a really big deal. So don't say that a third-party campaign can't have any influence. And that's an example of a campaign. Henry Wallace wasn't going to win, and Henry Wallace wasn't a communist. It wasn't a recruiting drive that the communists were on. It wasn't that. But it also win the center of resistance. And it was a very effective tactic that changed American history. Another great example of a situation like that, um, you know, is the Jesse Jackson campaign of 1984, right? Jesse Jackson, uh, he was running in the Democratic primary and he didn't have a chance. They were not going to let Jesse Jackson become the Democratic nominee. But Jesse Jackson's campaign, and again, Jesse Jackson is not a communist. He's a, a phony and a, a fraud in a lot of ways. You know, you know, there's a lot of criticism of him. But regardless, Jesse Jackson's campaign became the center of anti-imperialism. It was supporting the Palestinians. It was a, supporting Nelson Mandela and the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. It was, uh, it was supporting LGBT rights, which back in 1984 was a really big deal. Um, it was supporting the labor movement and opposing, opposing you know, the, the attacks on labor unions. And in the 1984 election, Jesse Jackson, regardless of the fact that he himself is a bit of a, you know, a huckster, you know, like Henry Wallace, who later, you know, supported the Korean War and stuff, doesn't matter. 
occasionally a campaign will come along that is the center of resistance. Um, and that's really important. 2008, Cynthia McKinney, her Green Party campaign. I voted for her in 2008. Uh, that was the first presidential vote I ever cast. It was for Cynthia McKinney of the Green Party. And that was a very, very significant campaign, right? That again, Cynthia McKinney wasn't going to win. That was the year of Obama. But she was raising the issues, the issues that were really important, opposing the wars, supporting Cuba, supporting Venezuela. Uh, you know, uh, she was really, really important. Um, and, and Cynthia McKinney's campaign in 2008. So there can be times where there's a third party campaign that isn't going to win that communists and revolutionaries should support because it, it, it is supporting, it's about building a movement of resistance to imperialism, right? And you'll notice this is something that, that the, the fakes will never do. They can't stand it, right? You know, ContraPoints, Vosh, AOC, Jacobin, they were all saying, vote for Biden, vote for Biden, vote for Biden. It drives them up the wall if you vote for one of these campaigns that isn't part of the script. They can't stand it. You're supposed to vote for Bernie Sanders in the primary and then feel sad that he didn't win. And then you're supposed to vote for the Democrats. But, you know, you know, the campaign of uh, the campaign of of Jimmy Dore is something they're they're already incensed about. Look at Twitter. They're just incensed about the idea that Jimmy Dore might run. That's probably showing it's a good idea, isn't it? Um, very good. And the same with Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson, when he ran in 1984, that was a really big deal. And again, it was a situation where, you know, they went crazy and they called him an anti-Semite. I don't know if you remember this, but they they said that Jesse Jackson was anti-Semitic uh, and they, they ran a whole thing that he supported the Palestinians. They said that means he wants to kill all Jews, which is not what it means. And then they also they had a clip of him. He used a derogatory term one time. And because of that, you know, you know, they oh Jesse Jackson's anti-Semitic and they, they tried to cancel Jesse Jackson. Um, but that 1984 campaign was important. And now, finally, I do want to mention a couple other circumstances, because the way communists support elections can be different in different circumstances. I just told you about the main way that communists participate during normal times. It's a, it's a recruiting drive, right? You know, Eugene Debs was going out there preaching socialism, trying to recruit people to the Socialist Party, trying to spread the message of socialism. William Z. Foster was going out there preaching socialism. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, uh, Eldridge Cleaver of the Black Panthers, he ran for president in 1968. Again, he wasn't going to win. It was a recruiting drive for the Black Panthers, for the Peace and Freedom Party. You know, he's spreading the revolutionary message. Um, right. That's one way. Then the next way is to support a campaign that is the center of resistance. Right. And that happens where you have a, a campaign that is a center of resistance to to imperialism as uh, the, the symbol of people's resistance that can have an impact like Henry Wallace or Jesse Jackson or Cynthia McKinney. But then on top of that, rarely, I can only think of two instances in American history, two, two instances in American history in which it would be correct to endorse one of the main candidates. All right. Uh, all right, Angela Davis supporting the coup. coup. Marxism, Leninism. Only two instances. The first is 1864. 1864. In the 1864 presidential election, 
Abraham Lincoln was running for re-election. And if Abraham Lincoln had lost in 1864, uh, at that point, uh, that would have meant peace with the South, and it would have meant that slavery remained intact. Um, that is an instance, um, you know, um, you know, that is an in instance where, you know, if, if Abraham Lincoln had lost, if the Democrats had won, uh, the Civil War would have come to a halt and slavery would have remained intact. And in order to finish the Civil War, in order to Carl Malick campaigned for Abraham Lincoln. And there was massive support for Abraham Lincoln from revolutionaries and progressives. Frederick Douglass campaigned for Abraham Lincoln. All the great revolutionary organizers and activists in 1864 were doing everything they could to make sure, to make sure that, uh, that Abraham Lincoln got reelected. Uh, that was very, very important. And the other example I can think of is 1936. In 1936, Roosevelt was running for office. And he was running for office on a platform of supporting labor unions. And he was running as the one candidate that Wall Street opposed, you know, and he was embracing labor unions and he had recognized the Soviet Union and he was making the United States more friendly to the Soviet Union. And he was supporting the right of workers to sit down and occupy their factories. That actually came a couple months after the election. But Roosevelt was the pro-labor candidate in 1936, and his opposition, the opponents, uh, they were moving toward fascism. And Roosevelt was a progressive Bonapartist who was aligning with the labor movement. And if Roosevelt had lost the 1936 presidential elections, um, it's very likely the USA would have been on the wrong side of the Second World War. It's very likely there could have been a fascist dictatorship in the United States, some kind of military you know, coup. But Roosevelt being able to build this kind of populist labor coalition in 1936 was very, very essential. So those are the two instances. And every so often that happens. And Roosevelt was not a communist. Lincoln was not a communist. But the election that they participated in was really, really important. And if they had lost, it would have been, you know, a big loss for the revolutionary movement and for the cause of right in the country. So those are instances where you would support a mainstream candidate. And on top of that, there's one other thing, and that there could be a moment where communists and revolutionaries would boycott an election, right? Um, often, when there's dual power, that's right, Marx supported Lincoln, you are correct. When there's what they call dual power, when there's, there's alternative power structures, one faction in the ruling class will force an election to try and grant legitimacy to their power structure in order to delegitimize the people's resistance, right? You have this in countries where there's like two governments that are battling each other. Now, Chiang Kai-shek in China, he tried to force an election on the Chinese people that Mao wasn't allowed to participate in, the Chinese communists weren't allowed to participate in. You know, Chiang Kai-shek banned the communists from running in the elections, and then he forced people to vote. To, to give legitimacy to his regime. Well, Mao and the communists boycotted the election. They said, no, this, we're not allowed to participate. We have our own army. We have our own liberated territory. We're boycotting your election because you, we don't recognize you because you will not allow us to participate. And in a revolutionary situation where in order to stabilize the old regime, the ruling class is trying to force an, an election on people and, and it's an illegitimate election in which socialists and revolutionaries are not allowed to participate, um, that's a situation where revolutionaries would boycott an election. So there are different ways that communists intervene in elections. Um, and I, I've gone over the different ones, but to review, 
The main way communists participate in elections is to get their ideas out there, to spread the revolutionary message. The second way, the second way, well, very funny. I have no political aspirations at this time. The second way, um, it, uh, is China dictators with proletariat. The second way that communists participate in elections is they support a candidate who symbolizes the people's resistance to popular power. And that's what Jimmy Dore would be if he ran. He would be a candidate who symbolized the resistance to the ruling class and the resistance to popular power. If Jimmy Dore ran for president, he would be that. He would be the new Henry Wallace. He'd be the new Jesse Jackson. He'd be the new Cynthia McKinney. He would be, he would, and he would be so much more than that because he's so much more charismatic and he is, he, he would be, his campaign would be the center of popular resistance to imperialism and war. And that's why you should run. And, you know, that's a candidate like Jimmy Dore, who's not explicitly a communist. They're not running on a communist platform, but they're running on a platform of resistance to the ruling class. That's someone that you would have to support. And then there are instances where you would you would endorse one of the major candidates because, you know, the, the stakes in the country are so high uh, that you would do that. And then there might be an instance where in a revolutionary crisis, you would boycott an election, right? That there's no eternal law. And this is what a lot of people don't understand, right? That there's no eternal law for socialists. Endorsing Lincoln in 1864, running Eugene Debs and Gus Hall and William Z. Foster for president to recruit, supporting Henry Wallace, supporting Jesse Jackson, supporting Cynthia McKinney, supporting, you know, supporting Lincoln, supporting Roosevelt, or boycotting an election. This is all based on the situation that you're in. It's about making a calculation. What will advance the people's revolutionary movement? What will advance the struggle for justice? How can we strengthen the working people in their struggle against the big corporations and banks? And it's made on a calculation of what is the best decision to make at the time. That's how these kinds of decisions are made. It's not about following an eternal law. Lenin said that if the situation changes in 24 hours, the tactics must also change in 24 hours. If the situation changes in 24 hours, the tactics must also change in 24 hours. There's no eternal law about how you do these things. You do them based on the interest of the class struggle at the time. That's how revolutionary Marxists engage with the question of elections. How can we use this election to advance the people's revolutionary movement and get us closer to socialism? That's the question. You know, how, how do you intervene in the elections? Can you do it in a way? What is the best way to utilize this election to get us closer to socialism, to build up the people's revolutionary movement? Because ultimately, it's not a simply a battle at the ballot box. It's about awakening the broad masses of people and building a vast revolutionary movement. It's about building up popular power. And ultimately, it's a struggle for the state, right? For the control of the state and then building a new state, et cetera. So there you go. Oh, some favorite authors in regards to dialectic materialism. on dialectical materialism. Um, All right. Very, very good. Um, 
So I just wanted to share that with you all. And those are my opening remarks for tonight. I just wanted to, to kind of share with you the, the communist approach to elections, because I think there's a lot of confusion about it. Again, people have this kindergarten communism. No, we need a revolution. We don't need an election. Well, no shit, Sherlock. Yes, we do need a revolution. But elections can be a tactic that could be useful to our cause. Sometimes, not always. And there are different ways to make them useful to our cause. And we need to be thinking about that. So I think Jimmy Dore running for president would be awesome, would be tremendous. And I hope he does it. I absolutely hope he does it. The Center for Political Innovation cannot be involved in an election campaign because we're an educational organization. But I think that would be a tremendous thing if he ran. So there we go. All right, folks, uh, short opening remarks for tonight. Now I'll do the roll call where I call you all out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations. And then from there, I'll start answering your super chat questions because we've got a lot of super chat questions tonight, some really good ones too that I'm going to have a good time answering and telling you about. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, and I will start calling people out as I see them. Names and locations, who is on the other side of the camera? Who's on the other side tonight? Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. We got Isaac in Vancouver. Welcome, Isaac. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Right? We got Kinky and Joshua Tree. Shout out to you. We got Cleveland Pirate Alex. We got Mark Jones in Utica. Glendale Duncachino. Belly of the Beast USA. Johnny Blaze. Marissa in Washington. Did I click on it or then it went away? All right. Rise from Adelaide, Australia. San Miguel. We got Io in New York City. Shout out to you. Jonathan from Arkansas. Kieran in San Diego. And he sent a super chat. Thank you, Kieran. Much appreciated. Yada Yisrael. Don D from NYC. Dylan says door 24. New Jersey. Very, very good. We got Adam Carter. I got Carter in Duluth, Minnesota. We need a CPI org in Minnesota. I think we've got people already. We can connect you. My friend, we can connect you. Henry in North Carolina, Jeff in Charlotte, Alex in Texas, Auckland, New Zealand, California, uh, Alex from Brazil, Joe King from Prussia, Joe from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, Stephen Ann from Georgia, Shaniqua from Buffalo. Welcome, Shaniqua. Good to have you. Joey from Belize, Christina from California, MJ in California, Gabby in Chicago, Illinois, Gabo Hernandez. Very, very good. Very, very good. Patrick from Rhode Island. Very, very good. The Golden Egg from Easter Island. Very, very good. Joey from Belize. Very, very good. Very, very good. Names and locations, folks. I'm calling you out as I see you. Uh, Many Dog in Chicago. Nathaniel from Washington. St. David's Bermuda. Micah from Las Vegas. Jamie from St. Paul. Michael Jackson watching. I think he's dead. Uh, Chase from Brazonia, Texas, Mo and and Danielle in Pomona, California. Very, very good. Very, very good. Um, very, very good. Um, Salt Lake City, Utah, Carlos Martinez. Welcome from Salt Lake City. Very, very good. Um, Dustin Schlesinger uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Shout out to you, Dustin. Very, very good. Um, Boston. Paper and Pen is out in Boston. Little in Sacramento. Tucson. Uh, someone in Tucson, right? Virgil in Tucson. Atlanta. Dallas, Texas. Riverside, California. Philip in Cedar Park, Texas. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And now I start answering your super chat questions. Start answering your super chat questions. So. 
The first Super Chat question was from Chaya, and she asked, she said she just got back from Chicago. What are my thoughts on Chicago being the capital of a socialist USA? Well, the first reason that I think Chicago would be a better capital for the USA, number one, uh, is because, and this is the reason many communists have given for a long time, is that Washington, D.C. was picked back when we had the 13 colonies. So we were on the East Coast only. The United States had not expanded westward yet. And it was picked as a compromise with the slave owners. The slave plantation system was in the South, and you had the New England planters, they called them, and more industrial cities in the North, American Solidarity Party. Um, and, you know, and it was seen as as a compromise with the slaveholders. It's a symbol of the power that the slaveholders had at the time, writing it down, American Solidarity Party. Um, it's a, a symbol of the power that the slaveholders had at the time that they were, um, that they were, you know, that they were in, in existence at the time the United States was being founded, the slaveholders had a lot of power, right? Originally there was talk of Philadelphia as a capital, but that was seen, that would be in the North. It wouldn't, wasn't a slave state. And, you know, Washington DC was selected because it wouldn't be a part of any state. And it was right in between slave states and free states. And it was a gesture to the slaveholders. So having Washington DC remain the capital of the United States is not good because it's holding on to the legacy of slavery. It's, it was only selected as a compromise with the slaveholders and it was like, and it was the center of the United States at the time it was selected, and the United States is no longer like that. So Washington, D.C., not a good capital. Now that raises the question, what should be the capital of the United States? What should be the capital? I think Chicago should be the capital because, number one, Chicago is an industrial city. It's an industrial city where there were a lot of factories, steel mills, and packing houses. And that makes a statement that we believe in economic growth in the United States. It's not a port. It's part of a global free trade economy. It's not an Atlanticist symbol. Chicago is an industrial city in the heartland. There, there used to be a feeling that, 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 the capital should be within a country. So if there's a war, if you get invaded, they don't just immediately get the capital. You have to march through the country to get to the capital. And it's an industrial city in the middle of America, right? It's in Illinois. It's on Lake Michigan. There's that. The other thing, the other reason that Chicago would be good is because Chicago is linked to a lot of history of struggle, right? You talk about Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party. You can talk about, about the 1968 Democratic Convention, the Battle of 1968, where the anti-war protesters were out there. You can talk about the unemployment councils of the 1930s. You can talk about Haymarket and Haymarket Square, where May 1st, the May Day celebration started, anarchism and workers' struggles. And oh, Jimmy Doris from Chicago. I didn't know that. Well, Jimmy Doris from Chicago. There you go. Um, Chicago would be a much better capital. For the United States, it is a working class city. It's in the heartland. Um, you know, it, it it would be a political statement. And when William Z. Foster moved the headquarters, the national headquarters of the Communist Party, to Chicago, 
It was because Stalin told him to do that. New York City was where the Communist Party was headquartered, and Stalin said, no, 1928, when the Trotskyites were defeated, Stalin said, move it to Chicago. And, and that was a statement. And William Z. Foster said that Chicago would be the capital of Soviet America, uh, you know, because it's an industrial city in the heartland. Um, and then Earl Browder moved the headquarters of the Communist Party back to New York, and that wasn't a good decision, right? New York City is very much part of the global free trade system. It's, it's, you know, it's where Wall Street is. And, you know, most communist groups today are headquartered in New York. Now, I know the Communist Party USA has moved their headquarters to Chicago. They still have this big building in New York. But, but you know, I mean, they, they technically the leadership is in Chicago now, which is good. Good for them. But it's still, you know, again, if you're supporting middle America and working families, you need to be in the heartland. New York City is not like the rest of the United States. New York City is more like Europe. In some ways, it's better. There's more, you know, you know, political diversity here. There's more room for dissident thought and and stuff. But at the same time, culturally, it's not like the rest of the United States. If you wanted to have a, a capital that was like the rest of the United States, you really ought to have Chicago. That's my opinion. All right. Thank you, Chaya, for a very good question. Is the relationship of the Democrats and Republicans similar to the sock Dems and fascists in Europe in the 1920s and 30s? No. No, it is not. No, it is not. And, and I used to fall for this kind of thinking, and this is the trap that you get into, right? Folks, World War II happened once. Now, horrendous wars will obviously happen again and have happened since. And, you know, obviously horrendous crimes like the Holocaust have also happened, you know, but, you know, the 1930s, the 1920s and 30s in Europe, it happened. And I've studied it a lot. I've read a lot about Weimar Germany. I've read a lot about, about what went on in the United Front Against Fascism. And it, there's, there's unique historical reasons that Nazis took power in Weimar Germany. And, and every situation in every other country where there's intense political turmoil is not an exact replica of that situation, right? One of the main differences, right? And people say this a lot. They say, look, we're entering an economic crisis in the United States. True. The ruling class is moving toward fascism in the United States. True. Uh, there are these, you know, you know, fake socialists in the government. True. But there are some very big differences between now and the 1930s. The biggest difference is that there is no Soviet Union today. There is no Soviet Union today. And there are not massive communist parties. There's not a massive communist party in the United States. There's not a massive communist party in Germany. There's not a massive communist party in Britain. There's no communist international. And the difference between the social democrats and the fascists was the social democrats were designed to sound, even though they were against communism, they were designed to sound like we can do the kinds of things communists want to do, like have jobs for everybody and healthcare for everybody and abolish unemployment, you know, raise living standards. We can do all of that without a revolution. Well, now there's no Soviet Union. There's no mass socialist movement. So the role of social democrats is very different. Number one. Number two, the right wing right now are not fascists. If anything, they're libertarians. 
right? They, they you know, the role, the role of communists and fa of of sock dems and fascists in the lead up to World War II in Europe was a one-two punch. The Social Democrats got elected and said, "No, we don't need a revolution. We're going to get elected and we're going to make socialism through elections." And they got in there and they didn't do anything and they didn't do anything and they didn't do anything and they didn't do anything. And it didn't happen, and conditions didn't get better. Number one, plus uh, the you know they were you know enabling there to be a crackdown on the communists, trying to cut the end the energy of the communists. They were doing a tap dance, keeping the instability in society going, uh, and and enabling the government to suppress the communists and all that. Doing a tap dance, keeping instability going, and then the fascists came in there as the follow up to really just knock out the workers. That's not the situation we're in at all. The right wing now are, are like libertarians, um, and they're just people that don't agree with the liberal order. Um, meanwhile, a lot of what the synthetic left is saying sounds a lot like fascism, right? Fascism is liberal Western capitalist societies collapsing into illiberalism in order to stabilize the system. They collapse into an authoritarian, illiberal model where you have a, you know, you know, you have the government kind of controlling the economy to some degree or other, but driving down living standards in order to stabilize capitalism. And a lot of what the woke crowd want to do is that, right? You know, they want, they, they support the ultra monopolies. They support Amazon. They support, you know, they support Amazon. They support Walmart. They support the big corporations and they want them to exercise their power more, right? The wokes just had a rally uh, in, in Seattle because Amazon isn't censoring people enough, right? You know, I'm mad about, you know, people like Garland Nixon and others get kicked off at of Twitter or getting harassed. They're mad that, that this big corporation, Amazon, isn't censoring people enough. They want people to be banned. They want people to shut down. But they have this fantasy. They say they're for socialism, but socialism just means worker cooperatives. They, it doesn't mean government control of the means of production. It doesn't mean a planned economy. It doesn't mean getting rid of profits and command. In their mind, socialism just means that we all work at Walmart, but we don't get a paycheck. Instead, we just get a percentage of the profits, right? So basically, it means we all get peace wages in addition, in, instead of wages. Instead of an hourly wage, we get, get a peace wage. That's what, that's what they think socialism is. Uh, you know, um, so, you know, if, if you work at Walmart and the profits of Walmart tank that week, you don't get paid. And, and that's actually bad for workers, right? Workers have fought very, very hard for the, you know, for the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the protection of workers on the job. I don't know who that is, but regardless, they think that's better because then you're a co-owner. It's almost, you're, you're controlling the means of production because you get a, you get a, a check, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a percentage of the profits, not a wage, right? That's what they think. On top of that, the wokes are constantly pushing the idea that average Americans are the problem. The people of the United States have too much stuff. They have too much stuff, right? The people of the United States um, have too much stuff. And actually, I'm going to show you another thing here, right? I am going to show you something else. And again, you're going to get all mad at me. No, you're not going to get all mad at me. Some people will get mad at me, but those are people that we're not worried about. Some people will get mad at me, but I will show you this is an actual Nazi poster from the 1930s, right? And I will show it to you, right? This is this is what the Nazis actually believed, right? This is not someone saying they believed this. Uh, this is an actual Nazi poster 
from the 1930s. Right? This is an actual Nazi poster. And what is it? It says, you know, this man costs the taxpayer 60000 whatever. And it's a disabled man. Right? Shows this disabled man. And it says, he costs the German taxpayer this much money. Right? He's over-consuming. That's what they're saying, right? He's a useless eater. He's consuming too much. Right? And there's just too many people in the world. And we have these disabled people who are consuming too much. And it was this poster that was used to justify the extermination of the disabled people. Right? They said there's overpopulation. We have these, we have these people. And look, this disabled man is costing the taxpayer this. So we just got to, got to reduce consumption. You know, we, we don't have enough, you know, to have these people here. It's a degrowth poster, basically. Right? You know, this is what Thought Slime believes in. This is what uh, Vosh believes in. This is what serfs believe in, right? Whenever they tell you degrowth, reduce consumption, right? There's just, you know, these useless eaters. There's just some people that, that shouldn't be consuming. In order to protect Mother Earth, we need to drive down consumption. That's what they're promoting, right? Um, and that's coming from the synthetic left, right? It's the synthetic left that's promoting this. Um, you know, they're the ones promoting this kind of garbage, right? The synthetic left wants to drive down living standards. The synthetic left wants to, uh, you know, wants to uh, reduce the population. The synthetic left wants to empower the big corporations and give them the ability to censor people and silence people. Um, you know, I mean, now, obviously, you know, the labor movement is separate from the synthetic left. You have people like Chris Smalls, who's a hero, who's fighting for the workers at Amazon. But they don't like Chris Smalls because Chris Smalls went on the Jimmy Dore show. And Chris Smalls, he also went on the Tucker Carlson show. And Chris Smalls actually supports the workers at Amazon, not whatever the latest trendy political cause is on Twitter. He actually fights for working people. So they hate him, right? He's a class reductionist, right? You're a, if, if you actually want health care for all, if you're gonna, willing to have a Medicare for all march with people you disagree with, that means that you're a class reductionist, right? And they hate you, right? Um, so I would say the main thrust of fascism right now is coming from voices that claim to be left. Now, that could change, right? And we don't want to make the mistake, right? There could easily become a, a form of right-wing fascist demagogy, right? And, and some of what Trump did and said was pretty awful, right? Uh, there were some pretty awful things about Trump, but Trump is down for the count. He's banned from all social media. Trump is down for the count. Now, he could get back up again, right? It's like boxing, right? When they knock you out, right? And it's like, he's down, he's on the mat. Trump is on the mat. You know, now he could get back up again. That's that's true in a boxing match. Sometimes one guy gets knocked down and then he gets back up again. And so if Trump gets back up again and he could change when he gets back up and do a lot worse stuff um, or, you know, he could do a lot better stuff. Right. Um, we don't know. We don't know. Right. But Donald Trump right now is not the main threat. The main threat is coming from the AOC crowd. The main threat is coming from the people that that think Jimmy Dore is the same as David Duke and a white supremacist. The main threat is coming from the folks who think that Chris Smalls is an evil class reductionist because he's trying to organize unions. The main threat is coming from, you know, the, the people that that want, you know, want Amazon to censor more. The main threat is coming from the people with the Ukraine flags who feel like that's how they, they prove. Um, I don't know enough about this. Um, uh I, you know, who prove that somehow that that proves that they're socially conscious because they can wave um, wave Ukraine flags around. 
Those folks are the main thrust of fascism right now. This, this could change, but those folks, are Nina Jankowitz, and that's the main thrust of fascism, right? I mean, I'm sorry. All the higher security guards protect us from borders. You know, Trump supporters don't like me. They disagree with me. They hate communism, but they don't come to our events and attack us. They don't, they don't call for us to be killed on the internet. They don't put up big advertisements urging people to violently attack us. They don't label us white supremacists and neo-Nazis, even though we're a multiracial organization. I'm sorry. I'll believe that Trump and his supporters might be fascists when I'm hiring security guards to protect myself from them. When that, when that happens, when Trumpers are beating up and killing communists, uh, then I will believe that they are the fascists. But right now, all the political repression and violence is coming, is coming from the so-called left. And they want to murder anyone who is opposed to war with Russia. And they want to murder anyone who, who has any questions. It doesn't just immediately jump on the bandwagon of the latest interpretation of the trans issue. And they want to immediately jump on the bandwagon of anyone who, who doesn't accept their degrowth model and want to drive down living standards and make everyone poorer. And, and they insist that socialism is an employee stock ownership program and that anyone who supports like actual socialism is the same as a Nazi. Um, and I'm sorry, but it's like, I'm sorry, but look, I mean, I'm sorry that the, the, the call for political repression, the call for degrowth and driving down living standards, the call for, I mean, you know, you know, the, I mean, I'm sorry, but, um, I mean, it seems to be right now it's the left that are threatening us. Um, you know, um, now that could change. And there's obviously a lot of bad people on the right. The right, I do not agree with. I'm a man of the left, but the synthetic left, they are the main force of fascism right now. Let's just be real. I'm sorry, but it's like, yes, I remember the days when I marched against the Iraq war. And, you know, there was a big rally I went to in like 2007 in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was a big rally and it was, you know, we were against the Iraq war and there were a bunch of right-wing bikers. They called themselves the the gathering of eagles and they were threatening people and being violent and you know they definitely attacked the march and those folks that was fascism right and uh you know there was you know the you know when obama first got elected he had his medicare you know hearings um and obama first got elected um and you know the right wing were going to those hearings and calling it communism and waving their guns around and all that but I'm sorry. I'm sorry, folks. Right now, we're in a situation where, um, you know, I'm sorry that, that the main the main group of people that wants to silence anti-imperialists, that wants to silence dissent, that that want to, you know, stabilize the capitalist system are coming from the left. And that could change. Right. And there's a lot of awful people in the Trump movement. The Proud Boys are awful, awful, awful white supremacists. They're violent. Right. There's a lot of awful people on the right. but you know, uh, right now they're not the main threat, right? And the white nationalism thing, I mean, there's a lot of weirdos on the internet, but the white nationalist current is pretty much done. I mean, they're dead. I'm sorry. I mean, the white nationalist element, I mean, it's like, they're bad. They're awful. I'm against white supremacy, but, you know, I mean, they're not, you know, Richard Spencer is begging for my attention on Twitter. You know, the Charlottesville thing happened and they've been sued into oblivion and, you know, the, the far right are pretty irrelevant at this point. I mean, I shouldn't say the far right, but the white supremacist, the, the actual neo-Nazi white nationalist current is pretty weak and pathetic. And, you know, they're not going to be doing anything for much longer. This Patriot, what, what's the group, the Patriot Front that everyone thinks is an FBI group that, 
you know, they arrested them. They were going to go riot at a, at a gay pride thing in Idaho. And that whole thing looked like a frame up and like they had shields with them or something. And I mean that, you know, Jimmy Dore did a great piece on that. And I'm sorry, folks. I just, you know, I, I mean, you're looking for danger coming from the right fallen gong extremist anti-communist religious group that is obsessively anti-China that is in with the Trump people. They're no good. They're dangerous. Libertarianism is a push for austerity. It's dangerous. Um, but there you go. All right. Next question. Next question. Um, next question. Um, um, 1956. What's your thought on the Hungarian revolt? Um, well, 1956, uh, the Soviet Union sent its military to intervene in Hungary because U.S.-backed forces had forced their way into the leadership of the government. Um, it was an anti-communist uprising, um, and fascists supported it. Um, and actually, one of the main fascists who was a big supporter of the 1956 Hungarian Revolt is David Irving, the Holocaust denier. One of his most important books that, that David Irving, the Holocaust denier, wrote was The Hungarian Tragedy. It was all about how these Hungarian you know, fascists had stood up against the evil Reds, but then the USA wouldn't send troops to support them, blah, 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 Jewish conspiracy, blah, 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 you know, you know, you know and that the fascists all loved the Hungarian uprising in 1956. Now, there may have been some leftists who got involved in it because of their grievances, right? And that, that apparently did happen. There were some leftists, but the Chinese military went and met with the Hungarians and determined that they were pro-imperialist and fought against them. Um, you know, there were various people around the world that were Marxists, that were critical of the Soviet Union, that met with them. It was very clear that the Hungarian uprising of 1956 was not coming from a good place. It was forces aligned with the United States, forces led by Cardinal Menzenti, uh, you know, who was a, a, a Nazi sympathizer, uh, you know, and, you know, Cardinal Menzenti and people backed by the USA and people that had been on Hitler's side during World War II forced their way into the control of the government. So the Soviet Union came in. And it's possible that the Soviet Union made mistakes that contributed to the situation getting to that point. Right. And I think that that's a very good point that, that the Soviet Union, I think they mismanaged things. Um, but regardless, um, regardless, it's pretty clear that the 1956 Hungarian revolt was not coming from a good place. And the Soviet Union was in the right to put it down and prevent the USA from destabilizing a socialist country. All right. Thoughts on price controls. Well, pr there's nothing inherently wrong with price controls. The question is, who is doing it? Right. And we need price controls right now. Uh, we need them more than ever. Right. I mean, right now, prices are through the roof and, you know, you know, every product has a profit margin. Right. Um, and price controls don't price controls don't lead to scarcity. They have this narrative where price controls leads to you have to sell it at this price. And that's, you know, and so then then people resell it at a different price. That's bullshit. Not necessarily. Right. Not necessarily. Right. I really doubt, you know, so, you know, again, you know, they're trying to say it'll lead to it'll lead to the Soviet Union and a black market and stuff. And no, like if there's a huge scarcity of something and you regulate the price, but with price controls, you can also regulate how much each person gets, right? So that people can't, you know, stockpile it, for example, right? You know, it's like, okay, we're going to drive the price down, but you can only get so much. You can ration it as well. So there you go. All right. Um, I don't know what, I don't know what that is, but there is certainly that. 
you're definitely right, Degenerate Gaming. There is definitely support for the Ukrainian far right among so-called leftists because they're just, you know, tools of the Pentagon. And there you go. There you go. All right. Next question. Um, Jack Shulman and Smedley Butler. I'm who is Jack Shulman again? I know Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler was a Marine Corps general uh, who became a uh, an anti-imperialist um, and you know and wrote War is a Racket and exposed uh, exposed how the um... oh I was right. That's kind of who I thought it was. Okay. Um, yeah. So there you go. All right. Um, yeah, I was right. Oh, wow. I thought it was Jack Shatchel, but Jack Shulman. There you go. Wow. I For some reason, I had Jack Shulman confused with Jack Satchel. Okay, so, you know, Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler was a, uh, a Marine Corps general uh, who fought, was in the U.S. Marine Corps for many years. And during the Roosevelt administration, he was approached about um, having a coup against Roosevelt. And because of that, because um, he opposed that, you know, coup, uh, he went before Congress, he revealed the business plot, it was called, there were congressional hearings about how members of the military had been plotting against Roosevelt, plotting a coup against him. Uh, that happened. Um, and then uh, after that, um, in addition to that, um, you then had, uh, you had later, he wrote War is a Racket, um, which, you know, the War is a Racket, which became... Uh, a, you know, a very important anti-war book exposing the military-industrial complex long before that word was widely used. The term military-industrial complex, I think, comes from Dwight Eisenhower, who used it in his closing speech. But, you know, it was, he was talking about how war is a way for big corporations to make profits and, you know, turn it into a racket. And, and you know, he did a great job exposing that. That's Smedley Butler, right? And he, he became a Quaker and a pacifist. Uh, and was a socialist, you know, social democrat, I guess, uh, after he left the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, so that's Smedley Butler. Uh, and you'll often see, like, anti-war anti -war military people, like Veterans for Peace, will march with a big photo of Smedley Butler and stuff. Uh, he's like an icon of, of you know, a, a military guy who, who came out against the military-industrial complex and war. Now, Jack Shulman, I, I, for some reason I had his name confused. Jack Shulman was for the... Party U.S. in uh, uh, an anti-vision game. Uh, what I understand, he became a, a Maoist. He fought in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. He was someone who worked with William Z. Foster. And in 1956, uh, when the Communist Party officially supported Khrushchev and his anti-Stalin stuff, and later in 1960, when they supported China, or they supported the the Soviet Union attacking China, cutting their ties with China, Jack Shulman became a prominent anti-revisionist, and he was a supporter of China and Albania. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that was the whole opening, my friend. You're late to the program. The whole opening was about Jimmy Dore and why I think it's great that he ought to run for president. There you go. Um, but, you know, the... Um, the uh, you know, the main... I think he ended up aligning with Albania. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, he was a prominent member of the Communist Party who, you know, when the Communist Party in 1956, they, they, you know, embraced Khrushchev's de-Stalinization at the 1957 convention. They also denounced black nationalism. They said black people are not a nation, that they're an oppressed group of workers, but we don't support black nationalism anymore. anymore. And, and Jack Shulman, you know, China and Albania were aligned as two socialist countries that were critical of the Soviet Union. And then China, 1978, Deng Xiaoping came in, 
And so then Albania and Verhoja wrote his book, Imperialism and the Revolution. And after that, then uh, because of that, he, he aligned with Albania, right? And so he was an anti-revisionist, Jack Shulman. There you go. All right, next question. Um, what do you think will happen to California if the mass exodus continues? Are you referring to, when you say mass exodus, are you referring to the fact that homeless people from all over the world are going to California? Um, that I, I think that's happening, right? That, that all over the United States, they're basically sending homeless people to California because it's a better place to be homeless. Local cities, you know, if they want to get rid of their homeless people, they, they, they buy you a bus ticket and send you to California. That We're dumping all of our homeless people on Los Angeles. And that what they call Skid Row in Los Angeles, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless people convening on Los Angeles. Is that what you're referring to? Um, I was referring to people like JRE moving from Cali to Texas. Oh, um, oh, well, there you go. Moving from Cali to Texas. Okay. Well, that's different. Um, okay. Well, I mean, I think that there is, you know, I know that, what is it? You know, that Elon Musk is out of Austin, right? Um, Tesla and, uh, you know, and that there are some Silicon Valley people who are moving to Texas, but you know, the homeless people are moving to California. And when you have that many desperately poor people in one area, uh, that's a recipe for some kind of Bonapartist maneuver, right? I mean, you just get all those desperately poor people together to be your, your goon squad, right? And then you can have a lot of power, right? And this is what, a, what the Gracchi brothers did in ancient Rome, right? And this is what Louis Bonaparte did uh, in France, right? That when you have a group of lumpen elements, people that are desperately poor and homeless and struggling to get by, and they're desperate, and they're all concentrated in one place, uh, pretty soon all it takes is one you know, Bonapartist leader to, you know, get a hold of them and mobilize them to be his hit squad. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's only a matter of time, uh, only a matter of time before something like that happens. So there you go. There you go. Um, all right. Angela Davis supporting the August coup. Um, why did she turn against Marxism? Leninism? Well, look. All right. So, I actually, I'm going to link it in here. I did a whole podcast on the Communist Party USA and, you know, the 1991 split and Angela Davis and all of that, because this is all a very complex question. The Communist Party USA, you know, it was stamped out basically in, in 1948 by McCarthyism. I mean, they were, they were rendered pretty much dysfunctional. And then when the Communist Party USA reemerged in 1957, it reemerged for geopolitical reasons. Okay. And let me, let me explain. Right. So I'm just going to put the link in the chat. Um, 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 all right. It's, it's called Agent Thorn, uh, but it's, it's really the whole podcast is me talking about the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, and all of that. It's with Peter Coffin, and I go into great 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 detail, and it's got a lot of views. You know, you know, uh, you know, compared to the other podcasts on there, it's got quite a few views because the the, the lengths that I talk about United States, they were a real political organization. You know, they were a real political grouping. Um, you know, that had a lot of power influence until McCarthyism. And when McCarthyism came in, they got exterminated, right? All the leaders uh, of the Communist Party, the National Board were thrown in federal prison, uh, you know, all across the country, they were prosecuted. Over 200 members of the party went to prison. They, they banned their, their publications from the mail. You couldn't mail them. You know, if you were a member, they wouldn't even let you have social security benefits. And, you know, I mean, it was like they just wiped out the Communist Party. 
And so they functioned as an underground organization for the most part. You know, and in New York City, they had quite a few people that, that held on and stayed true. And in other parts of the country, they had people. And there were people that, like, went underground. Nelson Peary, for example, he was a member of the Communist Party. And he basically became an underground person. He got a new Social Security card and a new name. Started working in Youngstown, Ohio, you know, hiding, basically. And they started having underground members and stuff because they, they couldn't function. But then Stalin died. And the Khrushchev secret speech happened. And when Khrushchev gave his secret speech and threw Stalin under the bus, that was sending a message to the United States. I'm willing to negotiate with you. Right? That's what that was. And when, when the secret speech happened and Khrushchev gave his tirade against Stalin, a lot of which was not true. Right. I mean, one of the things in the secret speech is that Stalin was so scared when when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union that he hid under his desk. He was just so scared. Well, that's ridiculous. That didn't happen. Stalin was a guy who was a bank robber, for goodness sakes. You think Stalin, he heard about an army thousands of miles away and was like, oh, no, I can't. Di-. No, of course not. Give me a break. This is Stalin. Right. I mean, you know, so that's just made up. That's just something Khrushchev made up to attack Stalin to say, oh, he wasn't a good ally to you during World War Two. You know, it was to you know, it was a lot of. A lot of what Khrushchev said about Stalin was made up. Now, obviously, there was a lot of political repression under Stalin. There were a lot of people who ended up, you know, in gulags who didn't belong there. And Stalin eventually executed Yezhov, the leader of the secret police. Um, and so it, it's more complicated than that, right? But, you know, it's like a lot of bad things happened during what they call the Great Terror of 1937. There was a lot of fear. A lot of people were accused of being Nazis who weren't. But a lot were. There were a lot of like proven Nazis also, right? I mean, there was a Nazi conspiracy to some degree or other inside the USSR. But, you know, there were a lot of people who ended up in gulags and didn't belong there and stuff like that. So we don't want to act like everything with Stalin was randy and dandy, you know. But regardless, a lot of what Khrushchev said in his secret speech was bull honking. It was just throwing Stalin under the bus, you know, saying to the United States, it was a message to the United States, hey, that guy before me, who was a hardliner, who was a revolutionary, who spread communism into China, who spread communism into North Korea, who spread communism into Eastern Europe. You know, I'm not like him. I'll negotiate with you. I'll negotiate with you. That's what he said. So based on that, based on that, um, you know, the United States said, okay, Maybe the the communists. Uh, maybe we can, uh, you know, you know, negotiate. And at the time, there were huge revolutionary upsurges going on in Africa, and huge revolutionary upsurges going on in Latin America. And they thought, well, if Khrushchev can tell all the African people that are like fighting apartheid in South Africa, you know, waging armed struggle, he could tell them to knock it off. That would be quite useful to us. And so basically, the United States, through back channels, was saying to Khrushchev, hey, listen, buddy, we'll give you some room to breathe, but you got to tell all the people in the colonized world, in Africa and Asia and South America and places like that, to knock it off, to stop having revolutions. You're the leader of communism, right? You're the leader of the Soviet Union. So if you start telling all the Soviet-aligned people around the world that they can't have communist revolutions, to call off the revolution. Uh, we'll give you some favors, and we'll we'll have detente. They called it with the USSR, and that was kind of the deal that was made. That 
the Soviet Union would get some air to breathe, the USA would ease up in their anti-Soviet attacks in exchange for the Soviet Union telling revolutionary forces around the world to cool it. Now, Mao wasn't going to have any of that. Mao Zedong said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. And the Soviet Union said, well, the USA has the atomic bomb and we got to call it off. And what did Mao Zedong say? He said, a new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. And the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. And I quote that at the end of every live. And that's what Mao said. He said, no, we're going to keep having revolutions. You know, we're not going to knock it off just because we're afraid of the atomic bomb, just because we're afraid of world war. We can't call it off. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. Well, Khrushchev didn't agree. Khrushchev did not agree. And Khrushchev was trying to call off the world revolution. So 1956, Khrushchev gave his secret speech, which got leaked. And I believe it was like the Soviet Union like gave it to Israel. And Israel leaked it, if I'm not mistaken. I'm kind of blanking on some of the history there. But if I'm not mistaken, like the secret speech was supposed to be secret, right? But they really wanted it to, you know, they really wanted it to, you know, go all over. They wanted the United States to hear it. So if I'm not mistaken, the Soviet Union had good relations with Israel at that time. Uh, they, the 1967 war hadn't happened yet. So 1956, if I'm not mistaken... The Soviet Union, they gave the speech to Israel, and Israel gave it to the United States, and they eventually published it in the New York Times. So the secret speech came out in 1957 and um, 56, and suddenly the Communist Party of the United States, out of nowhere, reappeared. It was a little weird because they'd been illegal. A lot of their members had been in prison, but out of nowhere, Eugene Dennis showed up, and they had a public gathering, which they had not done. They couldn't do. But out of nowhere, they had been outlawed. They'd been functioning in secret. And all of a sudden, 1956, after Khrushchev gave his secret speech, they somehow got the memo, you can have a public meeting, and the FBI won't raid it and, and arrest everybody. And they had a public meeting to confirm that the secret speech had happened. And then Eugene Dennis published a pamphlet called Communists take a new look. And you can read it. It's on the internet. You can find the PDF of it. And Eugene Dennis, the leader of the Communist Party of the United States, said, yeah, Khrushchev's secret speech, uh, it shows that Stalin was really bad, and maybe we ought to drop Marxism-Leninism, and maybe we ought to merge with the Socialist Party and just become this bland, bland mass party of socialism we're going to de-Stalinize the Communist Party. And so out of nowhere, the Communist Party, suddenly it was public again. They were having public meetings and they announced, they came out with this pamphlet, Communists Take a New Look, which basically announced that they were not going to be a Communist Party anymore. They were going to be Social Democrats. Um, and then, a little bit later, the Supreme Court said it was a, you were allowed to be a Communist, which was a little weird because... The Supreme Court, 1957, they ruled Yates versus the United States. And they said, you know, they had upheld. They had Dennis versus the United States. They said, nope, the Communist Party is illegal. Nope, 
you know, ruling after ruling, the Supreme Court had said, nope, you can throw the Communist Party in jail just for being communists. Doesn't matter what they said. Even if they said they don't advocate violence, if they're aligned with the Soviet Union, if they're preaching Marxism, Leninism, lock them up, jail them. But then suddenly, 1957, Yates versus the United States is passed. And the Yates versus the United States ruling comes out. And Yates versus the United States says the Communist Party can be legal as long as they do not advocate the violent overthrow of the government. And as long as they don't advocate the violent overthrow of the government, that's okay. Well, the Communist Party had never advocated the violent overthrow of the government. 1948, at their, their trial, when they were on trial in federal court in Foley Square, they made clear, we advocate a peaceful transition to socialism. We do not advocate the violent overthrow of the government. Didn't matter. They all went to prison. And regardless, 1957, Yates versus the United States, they legalized the Communist Party. And then in 1957, the newly legal Communist Party had a convention. And at the convention, the Communist Party was divided three ways. The first faction was led by William Z. Foster. And William Z. Foster and that other guy that they mentioned, Jack Shulman, uh, and others, and Nelson Peary and Harry Haywood and others, they said, we're not sure about Khrushchev. We don't like this secret speech. Something's not right about this. You know, I don't like this. Something's not right about Khrushchev. And then there was a faction led by John Gates. And John Gates, who was the leader of this faction, he said, Khrushchev is absolutely right. And on top of that, we should cut our ties with the Soviet Union. We should become an independent party. We should dump Marxism, Leninism, and we should become a mass party of socialism. And we should dump Marxism, Leninism. We should just become social, social Democrats, basically. And then there was a, the centrist faction, which was led by Eugene Dennis and Gus Hall, that said, we're going to keep Marxism, Leninism as our ideology. We're going to keep being tied to the Soviet Union, but we are going to stop supporting black nationalism and we are going to make clear that we are only for a peaceful transition to socialism. We're going to give full support to Khrushchev. And those were the three factions. And so Eugene Dennis and Gus Hall teamed up with John Gates to overpower the William Z. Foster faction. And they removed black nationalism and support. Um, but then a little bit later, John Gates, you know, and William Z. Foster didn't quit the party, but he agreed to retire. He agreed to become chairman emeritus. Um, and so he was basically, you know, he became, you know, he retired. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you then, you know, you had, you had Eugene Dennis and Gus Hall and John Gates. However, a couple months later, John Gates got caught pushing CIA propaganda into the Daily Worker, into the communist newspaper. And eventually the John Gates people who were anti-Soviet, they were forced out of the party. And so because of that, the Eugene Dennis and Gus Hall clique, they controlled the communist party. And the Eugene Dennis and Gus Hall clique, they'd all been in federal prison, right? They'd all, Gus Hall had been in prison for eight years. Eugene Dennis had been in for a long time. And these were people who had been through a lot, but they came out of prison completely, completely controlled. I mean, they came out of prison. The FBI was really far up their butt. Let me just put it that way, right? Going to Leningrad Sunday. Oh, very good. Have fun. 
you know, the FBI was really far up their butt and they got out of prison on the understanding, you know, we're watching you. And if you cause any more problems, you go right back to prison. And they came out of prison and the United States government made an agreement with the Soviet Union that you're allowed to have a communist party again. And they kicked out the Williams E. Foster faction and they kicked out the John Gates faction that wanted to cut ties with the Soviet Union, become a mass party of socialism, and the Dennis Hall clique. The Dennis Hall clique, they were called. You know, they, Eugene Dennis and Gus Hall, they kind of ran the Communist Party. And they were symbolic. It was a gesture to the Soviet Union. It was to say, look, Soviet Union, not only do we want to negotiate, but we're actually going to let you have an aligned party here in the United States. Um, what's also interesting, and this is where it gets interesting, is that, oh, there's a book called Operation Solo that was published. Morris Childs was a member of the Communist Party. A guy named Morris Childs, who got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Ronald Reagan because he was an informant. And he was smuggling money into the United States from Moscow. And he was bringing suitcases full of money from Moscow to fund the Communist Party. And he was an FBI agent, and he was an informant, and he ran a network of informants inside the Communist Party. They gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom for doing it. He was smuggling millions of dollars uh, into the United States to fund the Communist Party USA. So when the Communist Party USA reemerged from McCarthyism, it wasn't what it had been before. It was a group that was being allowed to exist by the government for geopolitical reasons, okay? And there were a lot of hardline, you know, dedicated activist folks in it. There were a lot of people who'd made huge sacrifices, but when they reemerged in 1957, they were full of informants and they were existing at the whim of the government. They were it was, we allow you to exist. We are going to monitor all your actions. We're going to tell you what you can do and what you can't do. We're going to let an FBI agent go to Moscow and smuggle your money you know, from Moscow back. The money that the Russians give you is going to be monitored and brought into the country by an FBI guy. And that was how the Communist Party functioned. Okay, And that's why, since then, the Communist Party has been pretty irrelevant, because they don't they didn't exist as this, this huge, it wasn't what it was during the Foster years. It wasn't what it was in the 30s. It wasn't even what it was in the late 40s during the, the campaign of, of, of Henry Wallace. It, it emerged as a group that the government had permitted to exist. Okay, so that's the most important thing you need to remember about it. Now, Angela Davis is a little bit of a different story. Now, Angela Davis, it's pretty clear her parents were like friendly with the Communist Party or something like that. She went to the same high school in Alabama. Uh, that Condoleezza Rice went to. Um, and, you know, Condoleezza Rice, her father was a prominent minister in Montgomery, Alabama, who refused to support Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Angela Davis's parents were political activists in the black community who were respected. Angela Davis was a childhood friend with many members of the Communist Party. So she was in those circles. I don't think her parents were Communist Party members, but they were like friends of the Communist Party. Um, Angela Davis went to Germany and got her education and she got her education from the Frankfurt school and the Frankfurt school is the, you know, that's CIA, right? That's Herbert Marcuse. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, Theodore Adorno and these people, they were getting CIA money. It was Congress for cultural freedom. And she was studying with them as an academic. And that's who she was mentored by Herbert Marcuse. 
And a lot of these postmodern, you know, anti-communist, new left intellectuals were, you know, key in giving her her education. However, she came back to the United States and she made a point of joining the Communist Party because at, this was the height of the Black, Pan Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Movement. And it was the height of, you know, the height of the anti-Vietnam War protest movement. So she came back and she got a job at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Um, come on, come on. Uh, University of California. You know, I'll actually write that down. I'll give you an answer, but it won't be the one you want to hear. And she got a job at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, she was pro-Soviet, and she, she gave political education to the Black Panthers about Marxism-Leninism. And regardless of her background, she played a very good role during that time. Okay? I'm just telling you, right? Um, during, during the time when she was at UCLA, and she was fired from UCLA because there was a law in California, no member of the Communist Party may teach at a public university. So Ronald Reagan, who was on the board of UCLA, he fired her. But regardless, Angela Davis, you know, she, she, despite the fact that she had gotten trained by some CIA-linked people, some CIA-linked academics, she played a very good role at UCLA. And then, you know, there was the whole thing with, you know, with, with, um, with uh, you know, with, um, um, wow, now his name's escaping me. Soledad brother. Who are we talking about? George Jackson. The George Jackson, right? And she was romantically involved with George Jackson. And George Jackson was this prisoner who was writing revolutionary stuff and was eventually murdered. And, was, you know, she was eventually framed up and put on trial. You know, they tried to say that she had bought the guns for the, you know, for, for George Jackson's brother who'd taken hostages when she didn't know anything about it. And, you know, she was put on trial and she played a very good role. Um, and there was a faction in the CPUSA during those days. It was called the Che Lumumba Club. And it was like a group of black revolutionaries who joined the Communist Party because they saw that the Soviet Union was supporting the black freedom struggle. And they supported, they didn't really support the Soviet Union as much as they supported, they supported Cuba. They supported, you know, African revolutionaries, Kwame Nkrumah, and, and they were aligned with the Third World Revolutionary Movement. They liked the Black Panthers. They were sympathetic to the Black Panthers. And so they were like a group of black intellectuals who joined the Communist Party because the Communist Party was the party that was aligned with all these revolutionary groups around the world. It was the Soviet-aligned party, but it was also aligned with Cuba. It was also aligned with, you know, with black liberation movements in Africa, etc. So she played a pretty good role, and she was put on trial, framed up. She was acquitted, you know, and found not guilty and released. Uh, she went all over the socialist countries giving speeches about the black freedom struggle. You know, and she played a pretty good role, and she was just, you know, one of the main public faces of the Communist Party, right? It made sense, right, that, you know, Gus Hall was a, a union guy, a labor organizer from the 1930s. And he represented the older generation, the William Z. Foster period, right? And Angela Davis represented the Black Liberation Movement because in the 1970s, you know, you know the you know the union guys, the the white union guys weren't so revolutionary, but the black people were in a revolutionary feeling. So to have a leader of the Communist Party, uh, you know, who was a black woman and was linked to the Black Panthers, that made sense, right? If the Soviet Union was going to try to have any influence over here, 
You know, they needed to not just have, you know, some old white union guy. They also needed to have a, a woman of color who was part of the black liberation movement. It just kind of it was just kind of common sense, right? The black black people at the time were revolutionary. Um, and you know, all of that. However, Angela Davis was also heavily influenced by the new left. And, and, you know, so that's complicated as well. So Angela Davis was Angela Davis. Now, um, you know, and there was a big apparatus. You have to remember, there wasn't just the Soviet Union, but because of the anti-Vietnam War movement, um, uh, you know, because of the anti-Vietnam War movement and because of the black freedom struggle, you had an emergence of different groups of people that were interested in Marxism. Like, like there's so many weird ones, right? There's ones you wouldn't even think about, right? For example, there was something called the, the Fourth Wall Institute. I don't know if people ever heard of it. It was a psychoanalytic institute, a weird, like, psychoanalysis therapy cult on the upper side, upper west side of New York, right? And it was led by a guy named Saul Newton. And they believed in Freudian psychoanalysis, but they were pro-Soviet and they flew back and forth to the Soviet Union all the time. And they they did they had a theater company that did plays from like a Marxist pro-Soviet perspective. And they were not in the Communist Party, but they were therapists and psychoanalysts who did community theater. And they were pro-Soviet and supporting the Black Freedom Struggle and voting for the Democrats. And they were a part of this. They were part of the pro-Soviet apparatus. Another figure, again, you know, not what people want to hear here. Another figure that was was in the in the mid-70s that was very pro-Soviet was Reverend Jim Jones, the Kool-Aid man, right? You know, drink the Kool-Aid, that guy. He was this preacher in in San Francisco who was a Democrat and campaigned to get George Moscone elected mayor of San Francisco and was friends with Harvey Melk you know, the first gay elected official, and he had this crazy cult uh, of people, and they all ended up going to Guyana and committing suicide. Well, Jim Jones was also in the pro-Soviet wing of things, right? He was this pastor who was in the pro-Soviet wing of things. Um, you know, and, and Angela Davis hung out with Jim Jones, right? Hung out with Jim Jones and went over to his apartment. And, and in Guyana, they, you know, she called in and they played her, they broadcast her over the speakers and all of that, right? And Angela Davis hung out with the Fourth Wall Institute, and the, you know, they called them the Sullivanians. It was this weird Marxist psychotherapy cult in upstate, in up in Harlem, and not in upstate New York, but in Harlem. They had this like weird community theater Marxist psychoanalytic group, and there were different different entities in the United States. There were different labor unions, like there was there were like labor exchanges. There were like went, like sec labor union people that weren't members of the Communist Party, but new people in the communist party and would like have a, uh, you know, it was like the, I forget, it was like the, you know, like, you know, meat packers union or something. And they'd be like the meat packers union would send a delegation over to the Soviet union to meet with Soviet meat packers. And they would go over there and, Oh, we're meat packers and we live in Chicago. Oh, we're meat packers and we live in Petrograd. Oh, isn't it great? And they would go out to dinner and, you know, they'd bring the Soviet meat packers over here and, take them to Disneyland and then they'd take the American meat packers over the Soviet Union and, you know, show them Siberia or something, you know, I mean, it was just, it was, there was a lot of stuff like that going on, right? And that the Communist Party played a role in this, right? That they were, you know, it was the Communist Party, it, it became a vehicle for the United States and the Soviet Union to talk to each other. And the Communist Party, the main thing they did was campaign for the Democrats. And the Democrats, they were the party that was saying, 
cool it with the arms race, negotiate with the Soviet Union. And the Republicans were saying, don't negotiate with evil commies, build more nukes, build more missiles, build more weapons. And so there was a difference. And the Communist Party more or less became a back channel for the Democrats to talk, talk to the Soviet Union and vice versa. Right. And there's a very famous story that in the 1984 presidential election, Walter Mondale called Gus Hall on the phone and talked to him. Now, you know, what does that prove? Does that prove the Democrats are communists? No. But Gus Hall was leader of the Communist Party and Walter Mondale was running for president. And Walter Mondale was running against Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was escalating the arms race, you know. Um, and so, you know, in order to you know, make a gesture of, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to escalate the arms race and I'm against Ronald Reagan. Walter Mondale had a phone call with Gus Hall and they talked on the phone. And this was like, from what I've been told, this was like the height of Gus Hall's prominence. Wow. The Democratic candidate for president spoke to me on the phone. This shows that we're the vanguard. We're the most important organization. Wow. The Democrat actually spoke to us on the phone, and that was more or less what the Communist Party was. That was people that were in, people that were in labor unions, people that were campaigning like crazy for the Democrats, people that liked the Soviet Union, and their job was kind of more or less to lobby Democrats to like the Soviet Union. You know, the idea was in your local area, you would campaign like hell for the Democrats, and. You know, you wouldn't publicly say it, but it would be made clear to the Democrat. You know, I'm a Communist Party member and we're working really hard for your campaign. And then the idea was the Democrat was supposed to say, well, these communists are campaigning for me. Maybe I ought to be nicer to the Soviet Union. You know. It, it's like that was the role that they played. When they reemerged after the 1957 convention, they were not they were not an entity with deep roots among the broad masses of people that was leading the masses to struggle. They weren't that anymore. They were a party that existed as a favor to the Soviet Union that functioned as a back channel of communication between the American government and the Democrats and the Soviet Union. And that's what they were. And the FBI was all over them. And it was going to make sure that they never became anything more than that, right? You know, they were allowed to exist and they were allowed to have a big office and they were allowed to, to bring in some money from the Soviet Union and they were allowed to set up. But they were not, you know, if they, if they you know, there were mechanisms in place via FBI infiltration, uh, via, you know, just, you know, having people at the top who they knew how to control, they knew the right things to say. Also having the Democrats work with them in a way where they felt like they were accomplishing something that more or less the Communist Party just became this entity that served a purpose during the Cold War. Okay, that's what you need to know. And Angela Davis was a big part of it. Right. And so then it gets a little more complicated because then what happened? The Soviet Union fell and there was, you know, Gorbachev was dismantling socialism. And so the, the leaders of the Communist Party, the leaders of the Communist Party arrested Gorbachev and Gorbachev, you know, was arrested. They call it the coup or whatever, right? Well, the Communist Party said, yeah, the Communist Party's right to arrest Gorbachev because he's dismantling socialism. Gus Hall said that. 
Angela Davis, on the other hand, said, no, no, this is an attack on democracy. And Angela Davis and her faction left the Communist Party. Some of them left during the coup, and some of them left at the convention the Communist Party had right after the fall of the Soviet Union. But more or less, a number of people quit the Communist Party when, you know, when the, you know, the situation happened. And they went on to form the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. And you can watch their conventions on C-SPAN. They're anti-communists. They, you know, they, they, they had people that, that had quit the, and sold out the, the, Social Demo- the Socialist Unity Party in East Germany. Um, you know, uh, you know they, they had people who, who quit and sold out the, uh, you know, sold out, you know, the Soviet Communist Party. And they were, they called themselves reformed communists, meaning that they, they came out of communism. That was their history. But they were dumping Marxism, Leninism, and they were dumping Stalinism and authoritarianism. And they loved South Africa, you know, where the South African Communist Party, you know, they overturned apartheid, but they didn't create socialism. They loved South African communism and they loved, you know, they loved social democracy. And, they, and it was it was a it was a move to the right. OK. And then the people who stayed in the Communist Party and then the Communist Party, in response to all these people quitting with Angela Davis, the Communist Party, they started to sound a little more tanky. In the 90s, they put out a book called Socialism Betrayed by Roger Kieran, which is an excellent book on the history of the Soviet Union. They put out another book on the history of the Soviet Union called Bitter or what is it called Heroic Struggle, Bitter Defeat, which is also very good. And, you know, Gus Hall emphasized Marxism, Leninism and such. And the the Communist Party, in response to in response to the the fact that all of their kind of social democratic reformist members had left. They started to sound a little more tanky, a little more hardline, um, right? My dad left the party in the 50s. He was dismayed at the Davis era and the Morris Child scandal, but he still respected Hall on some level. Well, Gus Hall was a hero. He deserves respect, you know, and I mean, Gus Hall, uh, you know, I mean, he he went to prison. He was pro-Soviet till the end. Uh, you know, he made great sacrifices. He was a, a hero of steel workers in Youngstown, Ohio. Gus Hall was a great guy, and that's the whole thing. Is all of this stuff is very nuanced and complex, right? Angela Davis did great things too, right? Um, you know, she did some good stuff as well, but you know, she was you know complicated, and you know, she ended up playing a negative role later. You know, so these kind of things are 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 more complicated, right? And that's the whole thing about all of this. You can't you can't view this in terms of there's good people and bad people. Is she a good person or a bad person? It's more complicated than that, right? And that's, you know, Gus Hall, he was a good guy, but there were times where he played a negative role. And there were some, there were times where he played a, you know, a more positive role in the final years of his life. When he, you know, defeated the Angela Davis and the committees of correspondence, he moved in a more hardline direction, but he still supported the Democrats and they still had the attitude that you have to support the Democrats, lesser of two evils, you know, and, you know, he died in the year 2000, um, 2000, he died. Um, And after he died, um, you know, Sam Webb became the leader of the party. And Sam Webb gave a blanket amnesty to all the people who had quit with Angela Davis. And so they, many of them rejoined. Um, Many of them rejoined. Um, And, uh, you know, so now the Communist Party is full of people who quit during the Gus Hall years. Um, You know, so I don't know who is who, and I, I don't keep track of that. And, you know, 
I'm just, you know, with all due respect to Haas, I love Haas. I've been listening to Haas all weekend, and Haas is amazing, and he's going to speak at our upcoming conference and all of that. I am skeptical. With, with, with utter respect, Haas, I am skeptical. I don't think you're going to be able to retake the Communist Party because it's not, it, it, is, it is, at this point, it's a couple people's incomes, right? And that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a clique of people and it's their gig. It's their hustle. It's how they make money. It's their livelihood. They've been in it for years. Um, and just like, you know, you wouldn't be able to get someone to sign over their house and car to you, they're not going to let, um, you know, you know, they are not going to let, um, you know, they're not going to let somebody just come in and outvote them. It's not like a party where you can just get enough delegates and all of that. No, this is it. This is money. This is a lot of money that's been in people's families and it's been set up by the government to perform a certain role. And, you know, I, I just, I really doubt, I really, really doubt that, that you're going to be able to, to vote them out to just, you know, play by the rules. I learned that in the workers world party. I kept thinking the workers world party was going to change. I'd be able to get in there and it, no, it's again, this is certain people's gig. And it's no, this isn't a major party. It's not like the Democrats where you can vote in this candidate, that candidate. This is little tiny parties are one or two people's little, little kingdom. It's one or two people's little gig. Am I right to think the term globalist is intentionally nebulous? In reality, it provides a cover for the capitalist ruling class. Okay, we can talk about that. So that's kind of my feeling, but um, there you go. Um, There you go. I, I hope that was helpful. Um, you know, I get into it in great detail on the podcast with Peter Coffin and Miss ACD. Um, I'll put the link in the chat one more time. Um, you know, uh, because, you know, uh, you know, that's, we get into great detail about this and it's a complicated topic. It's something I spent a long time thinking about. That's why I'm building the center for political innovation as a think tank and not a party because these parties are all one or two people's little ego trip, one or two isolated, ineffectual people. Um, you know, uh, and it's their little ego trip. It's their, their little corner of the world. Webb and Bactel were always together as a unit. They had 20 year run. Yeah. Yeah. But all the people at the top of the communist party were all there during, during the Sam Webb years. And yeah, Sam Webb is out now, but you know, but I'm just, I'm telling you these groups, these kind of third party groups, what are your thoughts on DC USA? All right. On PC USA. All right, cool. All right, uh, next question. Is China a dictatorship of the proletariat? Well, if you look at the Chinese flag, technically it's a block of four classes, right? The Chinese flag, it's the one big star represents the Communist Party, and you have four stars that represent the four great classes. When the Chinese Communist Party took power, it was on a platform of supporting a block of four classes against the imperialists. Uh, it was an anti-imperialist alliance. However, it was led by the Communist Party, which has a proletarian ideology. Right? And I think, here's the thing, the term dictatorship of the proletariat, it's, it's like, you know, Marx is explaining about different classes and the role that they play. But, you know, I believe if you read Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific by Frederick Engels, he makes the point that the proletariat takes power on behalf of all society. Um, I'll, I'll read you what he says, that, the proletariat takes control of the means of production on behalf of everybody, right? It's like, yes, the proletariat, you know, they're the class with the most to gain with the whole wide world to win. But, you know, you know, um, yeah. So I, I'll read it to you what it says, right? Um, 
right? With the seizing of the means of production by society, production of commodities is done away with, right? It's by society, right? The proletariat, yes, is the leader of a coalition that takes control of the government, you know, but it, it, it includes people of different, different classes, different backgrounds, but the proletariat is the bulk of it. Like, that's the idea, right? Um, right, where is it? I mean, Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific is a very important pamphlet. I mean, it talks about overproduction. It talk, I mean, it's like all the stuff that none of these bread tube people ever talk about. You know, what's wrong with capitalism, right? So, right, there we go. Right, the socialized appropriation of the means of production does away not only with the present artificial restrictions on production, but also with the productive waste and the present time. Uh, furthermore, it sets free for the community a large means of production and products by doing away with senseless extravagances of the ruling class and their political representatives. Right? I mean, if you read Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific, it's basically describing how, yes, the proletariat are the bulk of it, but it's on behalf of all society, right? Like, that's the idea. Um, that's, that's the idea. This can only come about by society openly and directly taking possession of the productive forces which have outgrown all control except that of society as a whole. The social character, the means of production, and the products today reacts against their producers, disrupts production, but... By, taking, by the taking over by society of the productive forces, the social character, the means of production, and the products will be utilized by the producers with the perfect understanding of its nature. Instead of being the source of disturbance and periodical collapse, collapse will become the most powerful lever of production itself. So, I mean, again, you know, there you go. Thoughts on the Workers' World Party. Well, I was in it for eight years. I wrote a big essay about Marxism, you know. I mean, I'll just, I'll link you the Marxism essay right now so you can just read. I mean, I wrote a whole thing about, about, you know, about Marxism and the Workers' World Party and, and, you know, I was in it for a long time. I mean, that's a whole lecture. I have a stream called The Legend of Sam Marcy. You know, I mean, I, I can touch on it. Um, but here's, here's the essay I wrote on the history of the Workers' World Party and Sam Marcy. I'll be giving a class about that at, at the upcoming uh, retreat. Um, I'm giving a class on this topic, but there you go. So there you go. So yes, China is a dictatorship of the proletariat, even though I don't really like that term. But yeah, it's the, it's, it, the term means the rule of the broad masses of people with the working class, the proletariat is the central force, right? The problem with the term is that, you know, people think dictatorship means this or that, but the term is scientifically correct and Engels explains what it means. So um, so there you go. All right. Um, all right. Okay. Favorite authors on dialectical materialism, just Mao, Lenin, and Stalin. Well, actually, um, you know, you, you want to read about dialectical materialism. A great place to start um, is the book Fundamentals of Marxism-Leninism, which is a, so pro a Soviet textbook. The Fundamentals of Marxism-Leninism. The entire first chapter, which is really long, is all about dialectical materialism. Another good place to start, if you want to learn about dialectical materialism, is actually Stalin wrote a very good pamphlet, Marxism or Anarchism. And it's all about, it starts with dialectical materialism. Um, recommend any other works of fiction. Unfortunately, because I love 1984, can you recommend other works of fiction? All right. Recommend works of fiction. Recommended. 
works of fiction. Um, you know, uh, the other thing is that the, the chapter on dialectical materialism, um, the chapter of dial on dialectical materialism uh, from the uh, the the Soviet uh, history of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union short course uh, was written by Stalin, from what I understand. So there you go. All right. The American Solidarity Party. My understand, I, they're like an electoral party. I don't know anything about them other than the fact they ran a candidate in the last election and they are socially conservative and economically left-wing. They are like Bernie Sanders economically, but they're against abortion. They're like a Christian party that is economically left-wing and socially conservative. They're against gay marriage. They're against abortion, but they're for healthcare for all and such. And that they participated in the elections because that that kind of thinking, which is pretty widespread, there are a lot of people that are socially conservative but would be open to more of a welfare state, wasn't widespread and represented. I don't know if they have any real base of membership or not, uh, but they are a political party that participated in the last election, probably because polls show that that demographic is very large and it's not represented in our political discourse. If you are for, you know, trade unions and healthcare and stuff like that, you got to be for gay marriage. And if you're against gay marriage and you're against abortion, you got to be for privatizations and cutbacks. Well, they were formed basically to be a way that, you know, to merge. A, it's, it's a widespread constituency. There are a lot of socially conservative, economically left Americans, right? It's kind of the opposite. That used to be this annoying thing. Libertarians, right? When libertarianism was a big thing during the Obama years, every college kid ever who thought he was smart said, I'm physically conservative and socially liberal. And they didn't know what it meant. It was just this cool libertarian thing. Was, yeah, I'm physically conservative and socially liberal. They didn't know what it meant, and it's, it's obnoxious, right? It's the opposite of libertarians. Libertarians want to privatize everything, but they're okay with gay marriage and abortion. And, you know, and the American Solidarity Party, I guess. I mean, I know nothing about them. And I, I mean, I don't know if they're really a thing or if it's just a guy who was running to make a statement, whatever. Anyway, next question. All right. Uh, how to spot feds. Look, don't go there, my friend. Don't go there. One of the main ways that they, that they hurt our movements is by making us paranoid, right? By making us paranoid, by making us think, well, oh, you disagree with me? You must be a Fed. No, you disagree with me? You must be a Fed. You know, and it's, don't snitch jacket. Not a cool thing to do, right? To quote Joe McCarthy, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And treat it as such. Somebody shows up at your event and says, why don't we get a bunch of guns together? And doesn't matter if they're actually a Fed. They might not be a fed. Doesn't matter. Get them out of there, right? I'm sorry. I don't know if you saw the the frame up or whatever happened with you know with with the Michigan governor thing, and now there's the Patriot Front. They're doing weird shit like this where they're framing people up, right? So, you know, if if somebody shows up at your event and starts saying, "Hey, let's do a bunch of illegal shit." Doesn't matter if they're a cop or not. Get them the fuck out of there immediately. And I'm serious, people, because they're going to try to do this. They are going to try to do this, right? They want Vosh and, and Thought Slime and, you know, and ContraPoints to be the only voices of socialism. So 
any legit voice of socialism. They're going to accuse you of sexual harassment and assault. They're going to accuse you of being a secret Nazi. They're going to accuse you of being a child molester. They're going to accuse you of every nasty thing. And one thing they can do, uh, you know, is send somebody to your event wearing a mic going, hey, wouldn't it be great if we, and someone laughs along and says, oh, yeah, that would be great. Oh, they got it. And it was a conspiracy to commit a crime. And then they arrest you and they arrest the whole group because they were in on the conspiracy because it was at your event. Somebody was on a hot mic saying something. Don't do it, right? You have to have a strict rule against any talk of terrorism, any talk of left adventurism, any talk of illegal activities, period. You got to have a strict rule against it because with conspiracy laws, they can frame up all kinds of people. You can prove that no crime ever happened. No crime was ever going to happen. But hey, somebody joked about it. They do it to Muslims all the time. They send somebody into a mosque to frame somebody up. They do it all the time. You know, with Jason and Ruhe, where he's going on about, oh, I'm going to get a gun. and You've got to stop that. you got to nip it in the bud. We are for a peaceful transition to socialism. Violent revolution would only happen if the capitalists refuse to allow the democratic process to move ahead. We are for peaceful transition to socialism through the democratic process. We are not a gun organization. We do not have firearms at our events. We are not acquiring weapons. There may be members of our group who are peaceful gun owners and compliance with the local gun laws of their jurisdiction, and that's that. And you gotta be very clear about this. They would love to frame every single person. If they could throw every single person watching this right now in prison, they would do it. They would love to do it. So don't make it easy for them. Don't make it easy for them. Um, what do you think about Jiang Zemin? All right. All right, Jang. All right, so the main thing is, if someone comes into your event and acts like a provocateur, you know, MLM and normal ML. All right. People are asking a lot of questions tonight. That's good. Um, you know, if somebody comes to your event and acts like a provocateur and sounds like they're trying to do something illegal or encouraging people to do something illegal, Get them the hell out of there. And if somebody comes around and they can't explain, you know, they give you a shady answer about where they came from or, you know, they seem to not really understand what things are about, whatever, you know. I'm sorry, if you're going to be organizing a public open organization, a lot of different people are going to come in. Some of those people might be feds. And if you are not doing anything illegal, and if you are functioning with the laws, and if you remove anyone who's disruptive, if someone's like straight up disrupting and preventing what you do and acting weird and preventing you from functioning, you get them out of there. But for the most part, you know, if you have a legal organization that's talking about Marxism and anti-imperialism, you're going to get feds who come in and there's going to be informants who come in to see what's happening and see who's there and, you know, check on you. Right. And, you know, it's not good. It's a violation of your democratic rights. Right? They shouldn't be doing it, but they're going to do it, number one. Number two, you're also going to get a lot of weird people, right? And that happens. I mean, with all due respect, all of us are weird, right? Believing in communism in America is pretty weird, right? Not supporting mainstream media is pretty weird. So we're all nonconformists to some degree or other. Now, we strive to be normal. We strive to get out of the movement to the masses, but it happens, right? Left spaces tend to attract weird people, and it's not a crime to be weird, and we will tolerate people being weird to some degree or other, right? But if they become disruptive, it doesn't matter if they're a Fed or not, if you're preventing us from getting done what we need to get done 
and you're playing a, a continuously disruptive role, get them out of there. If someone's advocating something illegal, trying to get you to do illegal things, get them out of there, right? That's my feeling. I feel there should be no drugs in left-wing spaces, even if they're legal, because we're not there to get stoned. We're not there to get high. We're there to get shit done, right? It's a serious environment. You wouldn't show up for work high. You wouldn't show up for work drunk. So you shouldn't have drugs in revolutionary spaces, right? Get drugs out of revolutionary spaces. No talk of illegal activity. And people come in and they seem, eh, you know, someone seems sketch. Eh, it happens. We're not doing anything illegal. And that needs to be the attitude, right? And the, the last thing you should ever do, I think that guy is a cop. Don't do that. Because you might be wrong. You might be wrong. You might be right. But at the end of the day, if someone's not playing a disruptive role, just let them sit there. I mean, you know, let them sit there and, you know, maybe they'll go back to their boss and say, all right, they're not doing anything illegal. And that'll be that. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to be, if you do anything about Marxism in the United States, you are going to be infiltrated. So, I mean, it, it, it's going to happen. Um, so there you go. You know, it's just a fact of life. And, uh, you know, now, you know, if we were forming some kind of, you know, something that we're not forming, maybe you would operate a little bit differently, but we're not, you know what I mean? We're forming an open legal educational organization that, you know, teaches people about Marxism. And yeah, there's going to be people who come around and I'm sure eventually we're going to find out that, you know, okay, this person who came to my event here, this person who was there was an informant. All right. It happens. Life goes on. And that's the reality of organizing under this system is you are going to get state harassment. And again, it's good that they come around and see that you're not doing anything illegal, that you're abiding by the law, and then they move on. And if they try to frame you up, see it and stop it and don't allow anyone to come in and set you up for a crime or, or you know, promote illegal activities. So there you go. All right. The term globalist is vague. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's a term used by populists and it's a classless term, right? It's like about loyalty to the nation. It's not pointing out that it's the capitalists, the owners of the means of production, the imperialists. So there you go. There you go. All right. Uh, PCUSA. I mean, there's a lot of great people in PCUSA. Chris Alulli is awesome. He's a member of the PCUSA. He's spoken at CPI events. He's a great, great guy. Uh, there's a woman named Kayla who's in the PCUSA. Did a great interview with George Galloway. She's come to some CPI events before. She's really awesome. Does great solidarity work with Latin America. You know, PCUSA folks marched with CPI people at the, the rally on May 1st at the, the uh, in Washington, D.C. That was really awesome. A lot of great people in CP, PCUSA. I, I, I think PCUSA is great. You know, brought a lot of great people in it. You know, but I do want to tell you that that... Okay, with all due respect to PCUSA, I mean, you know, there's a lot of these little parties, you know what I mean? And I'm sorry, if we're going to build a real revolutionary movement, we're going to build a real revolutionary movement, we got to be more serious, right? None of these parties are going to take power, all right? The Communist Party USA and the Workers' World Party and the Revolutionary Communist Party and the PCUSA and the American Party of Labor, and the Socialist Workers Party, none of these groups are going to take power, okay? They're not. In order to have socialism in the United States, you need millions of people in motion. You need something that is, you know, a huge mass movement that has people in the labor unions, that has people, you know, people in, in you know, in communities, that has people elected to office, that has, you know, in order to really bring socialism about, you need far more than any of these parties can ever complain to, can ever pretend to have. Okay? And so 
I am at the point in my life where I'm done joining parties. I'm organizing a think tank, and we allow anybody from any of these parties to join. Right? If you're a member of the CPUSA, we have a number of members of CPUSA that are in the CPI, and they are welcome. We have a number of members of PCUSA that are in the CPI, and they're welcome. We have some Trotskyists. We have some Maoists. We have some socialistic people that are open to it. Anyone who wants to work with us in our educational efforts is welcome to join. And we are not a party. We are a think tank, an educational institution that will be part of something bigger. Something bigger. All right. Next question. When, when stuff happens, it'll be something much bigger. Thoughts on the Workers' World Party. I was in it for eight years. Um, my biggest difference with them politically is movementism. Uh, they tail after the movement. Whatever is trendy among leftist kind of people, you know, among liberals, whatever liberals are doing, they try to reserve the per the stage and get the permit. And I think we need to get out of the movement and to the masses. We need to preach socialism to the broad masses of people. Their strategy left over from the late Cold War is try to take over the movement. And I can go into great detail about their history, and I'll be giving a very long class uh, at, the, at the retreat coming up about Sam Marcy and his political legacy. PSL, Party of Socialism and Liberation is the biggest incarnation of the Marcyite tendency, um, you know, uh, but, you know, the Workers' World Party is what PSL split from, and Workers' World Party is still around, it fractured, um, it fell apart, basically, in, in 2000, uh, 2017, 2017, it basically collapsed, um, there's not much of it left, but, you know, they have an office in New York, they got some people in Philadelphia, they got a couple of people in Boston, you know, um, but, you know, they kicked the Detroit branch that was a long time, you know. Party, they, they expelled them out. And the Baltimore branch was a big part and they kicked them out. The Los Angeles folks, John Parker, they kicked them out. And, you know, there's, you know, you know, the Workers' World Party uh, is kind of, you know, there's a little bit left, right? There's a little bit left, but. You know, not much. There ain't much left. Let me just put it that way. You know, there ain't much left of it. Um, there's something there. You know, I mean, I think, you know, they've got some kind of like kids club in New York where they do like, uh, you know, anti-racist protests once a month. And, you know, they march in support of the Amazon workers. Good for them. Good for them. Great work. You know, we need people to support the labor movement. We need activists in the streets who support Chris Smalls and the important work he's doing. Good for them. Glad they're doing it. But they ain't going to be lead, leading any revolution and they ain't going to be, they're not the vanguard. They're one of many, many, many irrelevant sects. And the reason that they remain that is because they have decided to focus on taking over the movement, man, leading the movement. And, you know, that's not where I'm at. I say out of the movement to the masses. We need to get socialism to the broad masses of people. The synthetic left is toxic out of the movement to the masses. That's my approach. All right, and that's my difference with them. And I wrote a really long essay called "The Masses Are the Waters." Under are the the masses are the water. Understanding the failures of late Marcyism. You can read it if you really want to know in depth where Sam Marcy came from, where the Workers' World Party came from, what happened, where PSL, why PSL split from them. It's all in this essay that I'm posting here. Next question: um, Recommended works of fiction. Um, you know, I don't read fiction very much, but when I was in college, I got on a kick that I was going to read a lot of fiction. So I read, uh, Native Son, uh, which is by Richard Wright, which is a communist black liberation novel. And I read, um, um, I read, uh, I read 
The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, which is a Marxist novel about the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. And I read Mother by Maxim Gorky, which Vladimir Lenin's the novel that Lenin said was the first work of socialist realism. I read that. Um, and I read uh, The Iron Heel, The Iron Heel, which is, you know, it's by, what's, what's his name? Uh, Jack London, uh, the guy who wrote Call of the Wild, uh, White Fang. That guy, he wrote a socialist propaganda novel called The Iron Heel. And I read Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, which is a utopian socialist novel from the 1880s that was a bestseller in the United States. And it's by the, the guy who wrote it. His cousin wrote The U.S. Pledge of Allegiance. It's a socialist kind of Christian utopian socialist novel. It was a big hit in the United States, um, you know. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of good fiction out there that is socialistic, more or less. So there you go. All right. Next question. Jiang Zemin. I don't know enough about Jiang Zemin's ideology and teachings. Um, you know, uh, I really just don't know enough about it. I, I am studying President Xi Jinping's writings. I've studied Deng Xiaoping, but I have not studied Jiang Zemin, so I cannot comment on that. Next question. The difference between MLM and normal ML. So MLM refers to Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, and regular ML refers to Marxism, Leninism. Marxism, Leninism is a broad movement. It, it's Cold War communism. It's 20th century communism. Soviet Union, China, Cuba, Vietnam, uh, China, uh, you know, Angola, uh, you know, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Yemen, you know, revolutionary Marxist movements all over the world in the 20th century that were aligned with the Soviet Union had Marxism, Leninism as their ideology. Uh, it's the economic teachings of, of Marx and Lenin, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, mobilizing against imperialism, building a vanguard party. Good stuff, right? I'd say of all the ideologies that I've studied, I am the most heavily influenced by Marxism, Leninism. Um, I'm not a pure Marxist-Leninist. I do believe in God. Marxism-Leninism is purely dialectical and materialist and rejects the notion of a God. I do believe in a God and spiritual power. I do think that, that 21st century socialism, if you look at how socialism in China has evolved, if you look at how socialism in Vietnam has evolved, socialism in Cuba has evolved, um, if you look at socialist countries like Nicaragua and Venezuela and, you know, and you look at the Islamic revolution of Iran, if you look at what China has done, that socialism has changed over the years, right? And so I talk about more 21st century socialism. I don't think Cold War Soviet-style ML is going to come back. But ML, classic Cold War Marxism-Leninism, is probably the biggest influence on my ideology. I studied that. I've been to global communist conferences. Uh, that's who I identify with. And I'm eclectic, like I said. I don't perfectly line up with ML, but my worldview is really steeped in Marxism-Leninism. Lenin's theory of imperialism is very important to me. Lenin's understanding of the state is very important to me. Marxist economics, class struggle, the theory of the vanguard party, all this stuff is, is hugely influential on me, and that's largely where I come out of. If you really, I always tell people the most important book they can read is The History of the Three Internationals by William Z. Foster which is the best summation of that ideology I've ever read. You read the history of the three internationals by William Z. Foster. You will know this ideology backwards and forwards. All of that said, so MLM, what they call Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, this is an ultra leftist deviation, right? This is 
Mao never called himself this. You know, in China, the, the state ideology in China is Marxism-Leninism. That's Marxist-Leninist ideology. Not Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, Marxist-Leninist ideology. And then in addition to that, they have what they call Mao Zedong thought, which is the application of Marxism-Leninism to China. And then they have what they call the Deng Xiaoping theory, which is the theory of socialism with Chinese characteristics, etc. And then they have Jiang Zemin practice and the three represents. And then they have Xi Jinping thought for a moderately prosperous socialist society, etc. Nowhere do they have something called Marxism, Leninism, Maoism in China. The country that Mao actually led and built has nothing to do with MLM. MLM is in the, in the early 80s, in like 1982, the shining path of Peru and the Naxals in India and the Babavakian people in the United States and, you know, like one little group in India and like one little group in Bangladesh. And they had a convention and they declared that China was a capitalist country was no good. The Soviet Union was no good. And Cuba was no good, and all the socialist countries had sold out. And, you know, the only answer was waging bloody people's war in the countryside, people's war until communism. It's an ultra leftist deviation. And if anything, I would say that what they call MLM is um, it's basically uh, it's, it's, it's Bakuninism or it's Blanquism. There is no economic understanding. Right? It's not about the workers and the bosses. It's not about building a movement of the proletariat to seize control of the means of production. Oh, no. The government's evil, man. We're going to get guns together. We're going to take it over. And then we're going to make it good. We're going to seize power. People's war. Yeah. It's the stupidest shit I've ever heard. It's LARPing. It's idiotic. And it's dumb. It's dumb. Okay. And there's not a lot of depth there. America's racist and evil. There's police brutality and there's wars. But when we take over with our guns, there won't be any of that because we'll be in charge. We'll have the guns. It'll be our state. Yeah. It's dumb shit. It's Blanquism. It's, it's all about seizing state power. It's fetishizing violence. And it's idiotic. It's idiotic shit. It's idiotic. It's not Marxism. Um, it's not scientific, it's not economic, it's not dialectical, it's just a stupid, stupid internet LARP, and they want to feel so revolutionary, and oh, it's so great. And in the first world, it's the basis of building crazy, LARPy, ultra-leftist cults. Um, and in Peru and in India, it's the basis of building ultra-leftist groups that do a lot of damage to the revolutionary movement. And the Shining Path of Peru did a huge amount of damage, a huge amount of damage to the people's revolutionary movement in Peru. Um, it's not good. And it's not scientific. It's utopian. It's basically utopianism. It's armed utopianism. It's, you know, we're going to build heaven on earth by taking over and cutting a bunch of people's heads off, fetishizing violence. It's not a good group. Not a good group. Uh, and it's a really an insult to Mao because Mao was one of the most brilliant human beings who ever lived. And it's really a shame that his ideology has been associated with a group of people who don't know anything about him other than he had a gun, right? Um, you know, what Jason Unruhe preaches, that's supposed to be MLM. And it's like, if that's what MLM is, MLM looks pretty stupid, 
right? You know, and the, the Naxals in India that have written off the entire industrial working class. India has the second largest industrial working class in any country in the world. They've completely written it off. Um, the Shining Path in Peru that bombed the Chinese embassy, that murdered leaders of labor unions, anyone who wasn't with them and their pays, crazed peasant Jacobin bloodthirsty head chopper movement, you know, was, you know, and, you know, traumatized the whole country of Peru. Um, you know, I'm sorry, they're not, they're not revolutionary. They're not a good group. And, um, you know, um, there you go. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. Um, you know, uh, I'm not a big fan of what they call MLM. It's an ultra leftist deviation. Um, and, uh, it's never taken power anywhere in the world and followers of it are isolated from the broad masses of people and they don't understand scientific Marxism and class struggle and economics. It's just this angry fetishization of violence. Um, so not a big fan, not a big fan. All right, folks, I'm going to end this live the way we end. Instead of showing the video, I am going to recite it because I want us all to know it. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night. Good night.